I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to Cinematic Universe, a podcast that's all about comic book movies, which you can find at cinematicmultiverse.com. I'm Joe Cunningham, and joining me to help make sense of the comics behind the movies are... James Hunt. And Michael Leader. So, Mike, you are rejoining us for the second time on Cinematic Universe. Yeah. You were here for Hellboy about a year ago? I think it was over a year ago now. It's yeah, way back ago. when. Wow. <laughs> so, it's a, it's been a long time coming, but you're back to talk some Logan with us. Yes, and with James this time, as opposed to yeah. Seth. <laughs> yes. Well, God, it's all coming together, isn't it? Maybe one day everyone will be together in a room. <laughs> you've given you've given Radio for the shove, and you've come back to the come back to your roots. For tonight, I have yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, Michael, do you want to, in case any of our listeners, I don't know why they wouldn't have done, but if any of our listeners didn't listen to our Hellboy episode, do you want to let them know a little bit about you? Sure. Um, during the day, I do online business for Film 4, so running the website and social media and all that for Film 4 Channel as well as Film 4 Productions. But then, under cover of night, I'm a freelancer. I'm a freelance film critic for Sight and Sound and Little White Lies and places like that. And um, I also dabble in programming and broadcasting. Um, I've recently been on Front Row a couple of times talking about nerdy things like Assassin's Creed. <laughs> Which I liked, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> With uh, That was the film with Magneto and Talia al Ghul in it, wasn't it? It was indeed, yes. <laughs> Just trying to tie it in for our listeners. I don't know how much they... We'll save it, otherwise, save it for the video game podcast. Oh, God, yeah. that, would, that would be a depressing project. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so um, the three of us today, we, um, we're going to be skipping the latest comic book movie and TV news, which is something we always do with our new release um, films. Um, and so what we'll do is we'll start things off with a spoiler-free discussion of James Mangold's Logan, um, and then we'll dive into a spoiler-filled discussion, much the same as our normal chats, after we've done the spoiler-free bit. So if you haven't seen the film yet but want to hear what we thought about it, you can listen to that first bit and then come back and listen to the rest after you've seen the movie. But before any of that, I'm going to ask... James, I don't know whether Mike is going to want to uh, jump in as well, but I'm going to ask James to explain to me a comic book concept that as a movie fan, I just don't understand. And this one, James, I don't know how to pronounce either. (laughs) So can you tell me a little bit about Dakin? 
Daken. <laughs> Daken is right. Yeah. Daken. First got it right first time. Uh, it's a Japanese word, I believe, meaning mongrel. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. I'm I'm confident enough to say that. Uh, <laughs> he is Wolverine's son. Uh, he was a bad idea from the start, to be honest, and they kept him around a long time uh, before he... eventually drowning him in a puddle, I believe. Oh no! So he's got he's he's gone now. I'm yeah. catching up on Dakin after. Yeah, after like I should. basically, he was a he was a bad egg, and Wolverine had to put him down eventually. Okay, so I mean, oh, it should be no surprise that I'm asking about this character, kind of because we've just seen a film with. Uh, Wolverine and X-23 in it. Um, so is X-23 kind of like a version of Dakin that is stuck? Or just a more su- a more successful twist on the Wolverine character than Dakin was? Uh, Dakin came along around a long time after X-23 was created. I think she was probably early 2000s and Dakin didn't turn up until 2007. Um, right. Like, he has... A similar sort of gimmick, like he's got two main claws and he has a third claw, but his one comes out of his the front of his wrist, not his foot. Like um, the, front, the front of his wrist? Yeah, he has two claws on the back of his hand and one that comes out the front of his arm. Like... Ooh. Like, not, yeah, like not, his laser. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty gnarly. I don't like that. Yeah, I mean, there, there's not a lot about the character that I think really caught... I mean, I say this... He had his own series for a while, like called Dark Wolverine, um, where he was the he took over the lead as the lead in the Wolverine book. Uh, okay, I mean, probably the most notable thing about him was that he was bisexual, and you don't get many bisexual superheroes. But there's not a lot you can say about him beyond that. So, given that, so you said he's the son of Wolverine. So he's not—he's not any kind of clone or anything. He's li- literally his son. Yeah, actual son. And if Dakin is a Japanese word, is the implication that from that Japan arc that inspired? Uh, not that- not from the arc. I think just from the character's ties to Japan. Just the idea. Well, I mean, he must have a mother, right? I mean, I say that. It's yeah, like, yeah. He, he might not have a mother. <laughs> who's it, <laughs> no, who's his mum? <laughs> uh, I can't remember entirely. I think it was just sort of a random woman Wolverine slept with. And then uh, the problem is, like, he he was raised by a villain called Romulus, who is kind of like some sort of ancient mutant along the lines of Wolverine and his like his reason for existing was to to kill all of the kind of Wolverine star mutants like it was a really bad storyline and it went on forever and like killing like Romulus eventually got killed off and killing off Dakin was a their way of sort of drawing a line under that whole sorry affair like I can't I can't stress how bad that storyline was and just having the character around reminding people of the storyline was a bad idea <laughs> Mike, have you ever had any uh, any run-ins with Dakin? No, not at all. This is all new to me. Is it quite <laughs> recent comics then, or in the last decade or so? Or uh, do you remember? Do you remember Wolverine Origin? Oh, is it part of Origin? I, I, I've not. I didn't read it, but I know that there's Origin and Origin Two that Kieran Gillen wrote. Yeah, well, like after after Origin, like they kind of they told the story of Wolverine's you know, beginnings. And then they, later on, they did a spin-off series called Wolverine Origins, which was after he'd got his memories back. Was that the story of his middles? 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and like in that in that storyline, he discovered like that some guy called Romulus had been manipulating his entire life, and they kind of kept that confined to those books, really. So if you'd never read Wolverine Origins, uh, possibly Dark Avengers that he was also in, um, you wouldn't have, have any, you know, had any reason to encounter the character. Hmm. Right. So. Okay. Um, while, while we're doing this explaining stuff, um, Mike, before we, before we get to our Logan discussion, mm-hmm. have you, have you read many X-Men comics? Cause I mean, I've read what I've been recommended for the show, which I've always <laughs> struggled with a little bit more than the average recommendation. Mm-hmm. Um, have you had much, much I've, I've read a fair, the X-Men outside of film and TV? A fair spread, but do you mean do I know X twenty three and Caliban and characters like that, or in what way uh, do you mean have I read much? In all the ways, I guess. <laughs> well, it's it's quite scattershot. I've you know, as talking to James about this earlier, I've I've read a lot of the kind of classic, the 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 original kind of Stanley bunch, and then the Uncanny um, in the eighties and late seventies, like peppering through that. And so then, you've read kind of what, like some some big arcs, like you'll have read some like big arcs and some Phoenix of, saga and stuff. Yeah, like that. and then also I, I I watched the cartoon, so I have a sort of base yeah. level understanding of those character relationships. But it is mainly that nineteen nineties cartoon lineup. Once it gets beyond that, um, I've only really read a few series that hark back to that. So I've read the Joss Whedon run, um, and then spinning out of that, I have read Sword. And so, yeah, that's why late 90s and 2000s uh, completely baffle me. <laughs> and, it's, and it's whenever I've tried to read the kind of like um, various reboots over the last 10 years that I've, um, while I've been reading comics regularly, I've, I've always found it a bit impenetrable. Yeah. James, do you think there's a bit of a divide when it comes to X-Men between the kind of the the stuff that co- that goes up to Chris Claremont and the stuff that goes after. And I mean that kind of in the public consciousness as well because because the animated series does exist and because the animated series did quite a lot of kind of like direct adaptations <coughs> of comic stories, didn't it? That Yeah, yeah. There's almost like the the Chris Cle- Claremont stuff stuff almost and and the prior stuff to that the Stan Lee bits bits and pieces feels like the main X-Men canon, and then there's a bunch of stuff that's come out yeah. that comics fans are aware of, but people like me and Mike maybe struggle with a little bit more. Well, I mean, the thing to remember is, like, Chris Claremont sort of wrote those characters for 17 years mm-hmm. and turned them from, you know, they were kind of... You know, the original X-Men book got cancelled, essentially, and they brought it back to try and make it a big seller, but it wasn't until Chris Claremont took hold of it and sort of introduced sort of the more familiar versions of those characters. Like, I'm I'm fairly sure Magneto's background as a Holocaust survivor was entirely Chris Claremont's invention. Mm. And, like, that kind of Malcolm X take on the character was all him, like, up until then. He was just a generic villain. And, like, yeah, yeah, he looked after those characters for 17 years until getting forced off the book and after that it kind of slowly spiraled downwards and into a sort of self-referential mess while they tried to keep it doing the same thing that it had been doing and doing so badly um i mean for me the chris claremont stuff is like that's the x-men to me and it's anything that feels like x-men has to feel like chris claremont in some way yeah 
Yeah. I really hope somebody does like a book length study of X Men like Glenn Weldon's Superman and Batman books because <laughs> there's a whole generation of kind of maybe maybe comics readers or just people who like those characters that just saw X Men as the cartoon series and then a roster of toys. So yeah. <laughs> I remember playing with, you know, a Mr. Sinister or an Apocalypse toy. But I couldn't tell you what the stories they were related to were. And Forge mm-hmm. and Bishop and Cable. Um, and likewise, when they pop up in Marvel, this is Capcom and all of the sort of Marvel branded kind of mishmash smorgasbord video games. So it's just, they're just a roster of characters to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. That people yeah. recognise because they're quite distinctively drawn, which is one thing you can say about the like Rob Liefeld nineties Jim Lee stuff. <laughs> I mean, it's it's fair to say that Chris Claremont sort of came <laughs> up with the you know the personalities and storylines that defined the characters broadly. Like any, everything that's been done since has been to some degree less successful than that. I think probably Grant Morrison did a really great version of the X-Men, but that was a conscious riff on and commentary on the Chris Claremont years. So that kind of owes everything to him. Joss Whedon did a, like, I don't know how you think it was, Mike, but I think that was, that was a very Claremont-influenced modernization of the X-Men. Well, it felt like um, Joss Whedon's equi- X-Men equivalent to Superman Returns, almost. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, let's just pick up where the comics I liked left off. Mm-hmm. And then sort of the problem is the franchise also had this kind of de-emphasis over the years because Marvel don't control the film rights. So they've been like publicly their stance is we don't, uh, we don't set out to make bad comics and there's no reason for them to make X-Men sell badly, but at the same time they don't, necessarily want to promote it as hard as they can so in terms of licensing it's not as important and naturally in terms of generating revenue for the publishing side you know there are better ways to spend their money than on x-men comics so that's also yeah, they are, affected they are things about to relaunch the x-men comics though aren't they and i i know there's a little bit more excitement for for the titles they've announced than there has been for x-men comics there, i mean there is but at the same time it's not like they've got their best talent. Like they've got a lot of new writers or untested writers taking on the ideas and they're sort of doing a conscious attempt to reference the nineties, hmm. which, you know, as we've just said, is the sort of franchises, what heyday in terms of its public consciousness, at least, but hmm. I don't know. I'm skeptical. Like I, I recently stopped reading X-Men comics for the first time since I became a comics reader, which is like 20 hmm. years ago or something now. Yeah. Just because I, I I felt the lack of excitement. So I'm just hoping that we're maybe in the period of an X Men Renaissance because without spoiling what any of us thought about Logan, it has been received pretty positively critically. Yeah. And Legion is getting lots of good reviews on television. <laughs> Deadpool was a big hit last year and it was really X Men Apocalypse was is is the blip on all of that, but it feels like post Brian Singer there might be some attempts to to move on. I don't know, and that, and that maybe if the comics are relaunching as well, and that they're moving past the whole Inhumans and X Men battle as a thing, and that Fox and Marvel are getting on a little bit more, so there might be a little bit more willingness to make X Men as the thing happen. I, I just there feels like a little bit of momentum behind X Men. 
as a as a brand and a concept right now that yeah. maybe that maybe these comics can capitalize on or yeah, maybe it will all just happen outside of the pages maybe it'll all just be on film and television yeah i think that um with x-men you know uh, just thinking from a point of view of someone who all the time people ask me to recommend them comics um who aren't comics readers it, it's you know it's superman and batman make it easy because they have discrete graphic novels or short runs that s- stand on their own but X-Men, kind of like Spider-Man, you know, it's like, here's a, here's a masterworks that's only part of a massive soap opera that was going on <laughs> until it was rebooted. Um, even stuff like Dark Phoenix Saga is, you know, part of something bigger. And you can't just read Days of Future Past on its own um, without a knowledge of who those characters are. Yeah, I, it does feel like being thrown in at the deep end a lot of times when James gives me some X-Men. I mean, the... the, the... The thing I'd like to say about that is while I think you're right, like you're both right, obviously, but obviously, when, obviously. when, yeah, when I started reading X-Men <clears throat> comics, like I found that really intriguing. Like yeah. the, the first comics I read sort of referenced other comics and they had ongoing subplots and it kind of made me want to learn more and want to sort of stick in, you know, stick with the books and you, find out more. You- do you think that uh, for for do you think that readers new readers to comics now are conditioned a little bit differently than you were when you were first reading comics because I hear that from people all the time <clears throat> that have been reading comics for 20 or 30 years like I just picked up issue 457 and it was I didn't understand what was going on but I was like this is great and I'm going to read the next one to find out that that doesn't really happen like that's what people used to do with TV shows with long running TV shows mm-hmm. that as well but now we've got everything at our fingertips and we can go back and watch episode one of any tv series we want well yeah like our whole way through and as a reader i can open up marvel unlimited and go back to issue one of amazing spider-man and read all the way through if i like or <clears throat> every comic is offering me a new number one new jumping on point every other year um so maybe it's just that as readers and, and when Mike's talking about introducing new people and recommending you know like an x-men comic to someone it, it is a bit more of a hurdle maybe now just because we're we're conditioned in the way that we consume our pop culture a little bit differently yeah i mean that's definitely part of it and some of the you know some of the cause is down to how the comics are written now as well which is that in the past they sort of had these fundamentals whereby every issue you picked up would do things like name the characters and explain their powers and maybe recap the story because they only came out once a month and they were only available for for one month. Whereas now they're written as chapters of a discrete sort of five or six part story. And most of the time, if you pick up from parts three or four, you're not going to get recaps of everything that happened because it makes for a bad collection. So, you know, part of it is that readers are conditioned differently. Part of it is that the comics are written differently. No, because I, I, I'm just thinking back to when I was well, 18, 19, when I went to university and went to Nostalgia and Comics and decided I was going to pick up comics properly. I did like pick up, I think it was like issue three of Batman R.I.P., whatever was out at that time. And <laughs> I did manage to somehow bolt that all together. I picked up like the third issue of whatever Criminal series was on at that point. But it's much. I think it's also maybe to do with an age thing. When you're a kid and it's just your comic that, you're, that you, you go out and spend your... like pocket money on although comics are a bit more expensive than pocket money now um, <laughs> you will pour over it and invest more in it than as an adult thinking this is just 23 pages that i can read on the way yeah. out of the shop that is true um when i was i was looking through the comicsology sale which is what sort of um made me think about 
where would you even start if you were just going to buy one one X-Men book? Um, and it reminded me that one of the first X-Men comics I bought was um, The Wedding of uh, Scott and Jean. <laughs> and it's a good issue. It was, yeah, and it, it, I felt a good pang of nostalgia scene because it's it, the, the, one of the standalone um, kind of collections has that as the cover. And it made me think about picking that up, but then I read the synopsis and it made it sound completely impenetrable because of where it was at that point in the overarching story. Well, that's the thing, because like it wasn't, you know, that collection is presented as the wedding of Cyclops and Phoenix, but what you actually get is maybe sort of six issues which are three issues before the wedding and then the two issues after. Mm-hmm. And so it's all a kind of ongoing soap opera, not a discrete chunk of collection. Yeah, and that's why yeah. with looking at this sale, I was tempted to just pick up miniseries that probably aren't very well regarded now, but were miniseries at the time, like um, uh, you know the Kitty Pride and Wolverine one. <laughs> Although um, that's quite good. Is it quite good? Oh, good. Yeah. And then there's one that's Life Death, which I guess was um, in the main Uncanny series. Yep. Um, but it looks like Storm being depressed. <laughs> yeah, she. Oh, I went, no, I won't say anything because I don't know where it's that. <laughs> See, what, what I like about the stuff that you guys were just talking about then, I was like, oh, Mike mentioned Batman R.I.P. I read that last week. That's fun. <laughs> and then the, the Scott and Jean wedding thing, I haven't read, but I listened to the Jay and Miles Explain the X Men podcast episode <laughs> on that comic. So I was like, oh, I know what happens in that comic. Also, you, you read uh, The Adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix, which is their honeymoon. Oh, is yeah. that is that directly afterwards? Yep, they go on a honeymoon and then get sucked into the future. Fantastic! See, it's all it's all coming together. <laughs> <laughs> I was um do a little plug here. I was a guest on Fantasticast recently, um, mm. the Fantastic Four podcast, and they were running through like at the start of the podcast, like all the other like Marvel issues that were or comics issues that were released that month. And they, there was like uh, Howard the Duck one that I'd actually read. And I was like, <laughs> oh, amazing. Oh, this education I'm getting on cinematic universe is really, is really <laughs> paying off. <laughs> hey, anyway, that was a that was a big digression, wasn't it? After asking about Dakin, but I I enjoyed it immensely, and hopefully our listeners will do as well, um, because I'm not cutting any of it out. Uh, it was that was great, um, but we will move on now to our spoiler free spoiler free discussion of logan so if you want to hear what we think about the film without hearing any spoilers listen to that bit um but we'll first we'll play a little bit from um one of the logan trailers before we dive into it logan what did you do charles the world is not the same as it was mutants they're gone now. I hurt myself today to see if I still feel. I focus on the pain, the only thing that's real. Where is she? Beneath the stain. She's like you. Of time. Very much like you. The feeling disappear she needs our help you are someone to come along someone has come along i am still right here and you could have it all my impulse 
Okay, you guys. Logan, the 19th and final film, maybe, <laughs> probably, to star Hugh Jackman in the role of Wolverine. Um, 19, that might be. I might have rounded up there. Um, <laughs> From 10. I was about to ask. <laughs> How many is it, James? Is it? I, I think it is 10, yeah. Let's count them. We've got three... We've got three... The original X-Men trilogy. Mm-hmm. We've got three Wolverine trilogy movies mm-hmm. we've got first class days of future past and apocalypse oh so he was in that trilogy as well so yep. that's nine and his face is on a magazine in deadpool yeah i think most <laughs> yeah anyone anyone who counts it is counting counts it as 10 is counting deadpool right okay so but it's really nine nine yeah in a bit. yeah nine in a bit Okay. Well, first class is a cameo as well. If you, mm. yeah, but it's so good. It's a brilliant cameo. <laughs> <laughs> sets sets the stall out for this m- movie with him dropping an f bomb there because uh-huh. Lewis, there's some swears in this movie, you guys. It's a fruity James, movie. Don't take Emmy to see this one. <laughs> <laughs> I know our listeners might be disappointed that we don't get to hear her thoughts on this movie as well. <laughs> I was hoping we could make it into a regular feature and then I saw Logan next on the calendar. I was like, nope, <laughs> nope. not going to happen. It's a um, surprisingly violent movie. <laughs> but James, you've been looking forward to this movie just about since we saw the first trailer, right? Yeah, because I can take a lot of punishment. <laughs> I mean, the the X-Men franchise has been disappointing me on a regular basis for years now. And I just keep taking it. And finally, it sort of paid off because I really enjoyed this one. Hooray! (laughs) (laughs) That's good. That's very good to know um, because sometimes our listeners don't like it when we don't like things, as as I found out. It's mainly James that doesn't like things. So, So James, you, you liked it. Did you really like it? I did really like it. It's probably in my top two X Men films, two or three. With wait, is your is your favourite first class as well, or is that just me? Uh, my favourite is X Men Two, right? But I think Seb, I would... Seb's the one who's up there with uh, on with me on first. No, I like first class as well. Um, hmm. Yeah, I think X Men Two, Logan, first class, maybe. Right. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So right. Okay. So James is going to be really high on this. Mike, are you up there with James? You uh, are you. You're I'm not up there sour. with James, I'm afraid. <laughs> um, I was. I, I'm. I think I'm sort of um, middling, but uh, but it, but it seems negative just in comparison to the sort of yeah. um, five star praise that this is getting in, in I... <laughs> the, re- the reviews. I, I don't. I'm not saying that you're a five starer, James. But oh no, 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 yeah. By some of our colleagues I was just. I was just going to say. I've seen a lot of reviews of this saying like. Logan deserves an Oscar. And I'm like, mm. if you think Logan deserves an Oscar, you need to watch more movies. Like, I really liked it. But Oscar? We're recording this three days after Suicide Squad won an Oscar for Best Makeup. And I thought the um, some of the design of the wounds in this movie could maybe be worthy. <laughs> yeah, know? but when, when people say that, what they mean is Best Picture. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's insane. Yeah. And yeah, I, I take exception to that. But the, the, what makes it quite a complicated response for me is that this is the sort of film I've always wanted from <laughs> superhero and comic book movies something yeah. that can be 
um, you know, freed from the shackles of uh, continuity and law and uh, tell it tell its own discrete story in its own discrete style and be more character led than incident led. Um, but I, I don't know. There was there was just something lacking for me. Maybe it's you know don't uh, you know be careful what you wish for a little bit. <laughs> but what I will say is that it's exactly the film that Hugh Jackman and James Mangold have always promised they'd make. Um, I know that's what they tried to do with the Wolverine, and it was quite a disappointment. Um, but this is actually what they say on the tin in all those interviews that it seems they've finally been able to create that Wolverine movie, that serious, mature stylized uh, but in a different way Wolverine movie they've always threatened to make mm. and that, and I I'll give Hugh Jackman that you know I, <laughs> yeah. I, 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 he's built up such a, a great amount of goodwill in, in my camp you know over the years that I'm happy that he's made the film he's wanted to make can you put your finger on what it is about the film that doesn't click into place for you or is I, it I think it's a it's kind of a mixture of things, and some of it is quite spoilery. And I surprised right, okay. myself um, uh, in how you know saying some of the the maybe the nerdy things that I would dismiss um, <laughs> in other films if they were le- if they were raised as negatives. But I think for this, um, I don't want to sound like um, I'm uh, you know raining on anyone's parade. But I think people who think that this is serious or mature or um, uh, you know something quite unique or Oscar worthy um, should watch more movies and get, get over the fact because this is an extremely violent film and it's got F-bombs all over the place but really with just a kind of tweak of the knob it's Deadpool really um, the sort of excitement or the sort of thrill you get from the violence in this film is not a million miles away from the the inventive and hilarious and thrilling kills in Deadpool um, it's I, satisfying the- a similarly I think teenage feeling of what is authentic the the thing that sprung to my mind because I've watched it quite recently was mm. John Wick. In that, this oh, is very similar to like, John Wick. Yeah, yeah, it's like a stylish, um, a stylish, very violent movie with a very well defined central character, um, and that's that's what this felt like. It, this didn't feel like to me like a serious drama. This felt mm. to me like a a moody genre piece. Mm-hmm. Um, and personally, that's that's fine by me. Um, I would say my thoughts on the movie, I'm probably in between the two of you. Um, I, I really enjoyed it whilst thinking that if you had to design a superhero movie for me personally it would look more like a marvel cinematic universe movie and a marvel cinematic universe movie that's really like that's really smashing it out of the park more like the avengers i would say mm. than this but this is still something that i thought was very good um there were elements of it that i really liked and um I mean, Hugh Jackman's just great. I mean, Mike, you said the affection we've got for this character, mm. for this actor, and this before, you know, in this role. Um, I was just so happy that he got to, you know, have this final entry. If he's <clears throat> if he's telling the truth that he's not coming back to the role, that if this is the way to sign off the character, that you're right, that he's doing it in the way that he's wanted to do it, um, and in a way that he felt was true to the character. Um, 
and I I was really glad that we rewatched the first X Men last year because that gave me kind of a newfound or a, a re appreciation for Jackman in this role, um, and yeah, I I I was that was mostly what I enjoyed about this was seeing that character kind of come full circle and some of the violence I kind of felt felt I was a little bit tired of by the end, mm. especially because this movie is what it's like two two and a quarter hours long. Yeah, Two hours twenty, I think, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. It. It's maybe even maybe even a little bit longer than that, and it feels it. I. I. It, <laughs> I felt like it could have lost about twenty minutes, maybe. Um. At, at least. Um. It's long when, without necessarily having much narrative to give as well. No. In fact, the other the other movie I would compare it to that I've watched recently is Midnight Special, which is kind mm. of a riff on a superhero movie ish from Jeff Nichols, which is like a a road movie where this kid with powers is being transported from one place to the other. And that really doesn't have any plot. Like it's literally <laughs> let's move this kid from here to there. And certain characters are going to interact uh, between here and there. Um, and that's like 90 minutes long and midnight special felt like a bit of a drag to me. Um, yeah. I liked the idea of the movie, but didn't fully buy into the execution. Um, this has more going on. It does have more subplots, and because we've got this investment in in the wider X Men universe, uh, there are things that that you know. But seeing Patrick Stewart back in the Professor X role, and Mike, you said about it being kind of free of continuity, which it is, but it's also tied in. There is an investment you get in this film because of the other X Men movies and references mm-hmm. to. Uh, events that we've seen the characters go through before or references to you know other characters uh, from those X-Men movies it does feel like there is there's uh, you, you it's, it's kind of having its cake and eating it it's kind of going we are kind <laughs> of buying into this whole X-Men continuity if you can call it that extended universe but uh, also we're we're doing our own thing and you don't really need to mind about that yeah, I think um, I think from my point of view, that's probably what holds me back from loving it completely, and that's what surprised me is that I was hoping for a. I, I, I've always wanted these films that are separate from continuity, like let's have a John Hamm Superman where he's going through a midlife crisis or whatever, and that's hmm. sort of what Logan is. Let's separate it out. He's old. Let's wipe the slate relatively clean, and it's just those little crumbs of continuity that are there or suggestions of continuity that make me kind of want more at the at the fringes. And that surprised me, actually. Where would this land in your league table, Joe? It's it's difficult to say because I've I've seen it so like I literally am a few hours out from seeing it. But um, I, I I do think it would be up there in my top three of yeah, it must be in my top three X Men because there's not that many great X Men movies. I don't mm-hmm. think, I mean, <laughs> and there X- are a lot of middling ones. Yeah, if, if we're talking about ones that are purely, you can say they are on some level good. We've got X-Men 1 and 2 and we've got First Class and Days of Future Past. Me and James aren't big Days of, Days of Future Past fans, but those Me neither. those would be the four in there. And then and then Deadpool, I guess. Um <clears throat> I, d- I don't know if you could make an argument. Some people might make an argument for the Wolverine, I certainly wouldn't. Um so yeah, there's probably five good X Men mm-hmm. movies, and so then yeah, I would I would say it's probably it's at least in the middle of those, um, and I'd I'd like to go back and watch it again with a bit of a remove to figure out exactly where 
Yeah, what about so, you, Mike? Where's, where is it for you, given oh, given that? It's certainly not um, it, you know, down at the bottom with uh, Last Stand and um, Origins. Um, but um, <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm starting to wonder whether which is better, a kind of consistent, thematically whole film like this that I don't love, or a film that is an absolute mess like Apocalypse that I nevertheless find moments that I adore. Oh yeah, we should we should go into this because I remember you you guys saw X Men Apocalypse together, didn't you? And yeah. Mike, you you kind of liked Apocalypse. Well, I kind of liked Apocalypse in the way that I like a lot of the X Men movies because I love that big slabs of maybe it's not very explored, but big slabs of theme. And just characters clashing against each other, but I guess Apocalypse to set it in context, coming out alongside Batman vs Superman and Civil yeah. War last year, um, where I watched Civil War and it looked like it was shot in a car park, and I found it very visually dull. <laughs> I at least yeah. think that Brian Singer has a, a filmmaker's eye and a real vision, and it's there in um, certainly, you know, certainly his latter two uh, prequel trilogy films. Um, in, in Days of Future Past and Apocalypse, it has these big moments and these kind of shots that are, are composed to look, you know, quite incredible. Um, I've not rewatched it since watching it, and it's you know it's now a year on, so I, I can't really um, defend it on the spot. But I'd, I'd like to rewatch it. The the, the one that uh, I, I'd, I'd say is like the Wolverine. The first half of the Wolverine, I think, is a is a brilliant film um, that goes really awry the further along it goes. Um, but then it's whether I would prefer a film that has a lot of great stuff with Wolverine as a sort of international man of kind of intrigue and adventure versus Wolverine getting the bone marrow drilled out by a robot samurai <laughs> <laughs> over this film, which I felt there was a glass ceiling um, uh, like separating me because I could see all of the genre tricks it was pulling and the nods it was making. And it all felt for me a bit too, maybe because I'm a film fan and not a comics fan, it felt a bit too knowing and cerebral without fully committing to that the genres that it um, dabbles in, which I guess are road movie and Western and character drama. Is that right, yeah. right? Would you, would, is that what you got from it as well in terms of the mixture of genres? And a bit of sci-fi, massive dollop of near-future sci-fi, which um, is yeah. there at the fringes. I guess, uh, I mean, this this isn't spoilery because... This is all there in the setup, but it's it was something that I was slightly surprised by, given the trailers and given, I guess, previous X Men movies. This isn't a post-apocalyptic world that we're watching here. It's mm. a post-mutant world, but not a post-apocalyptic world. Um, and I was I was intrigued by that setting. Like it felt, um, it felt almost it felt a little bit similar to the to the Japan setting of the Wolverine in that it, it felt like it was a world that you as an audience member were slowly exploring um, mm. and finding out new little bits on quirks and corners of um, and yeah it was it was something I wasn't expecting but the character I guess the difference here is that the characters are used to living in this world but um, I thought it was a I thought it was um, one of the more interesting kind of uh, backbones for an X-Men movie this that 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 post-apocalyptic, not not post-apocalyptic world, but just kind of like a slightly, a slightly dystopian future. 
Um, yeah, it's near future in the way that something like her is, where it's recognisable until a reveal of some technology that's different or some social concept that's slightly different, and you think, oh, that's oh right, okay, that that almost passed me by. Or, I mean, like, that the, that was kind world, of the world of mutants and like the world that Wolverine has to live in is completely and irrevocably changed but then we see the people he's driving around in his car and there's kind of like frat boys chanting <laughs> USA out of, the, <laughs> out of the car and you're going oh that's not a huge remove from the world we're living in in 2017 they're really lucky that Trump won <laughs> yeah no I mean th- this film they can't have been planning it but it d- it does have vibes especially with Laura being uh, Mexican I, mm-hmm. I'm assuming Mexican um, and and yeah, without saying a huge amount more, it felt it felt like, yeah, this this was maybe one of the few, maybe James Mangold was one of the few people going, eh, well, something's going to come out of this when Trump got elected. <laughs> yeah, but, that's true. but sorry, James, you were about to jump in. I was about to say, like the original X Men film sort of had that that vibe to it, didn't it? The the near future, like, is it even explicitly set? Like, is there maybe a title card that says like? in the near future or yeah, maybe something. something like that but like the x-men one is set basically in our world but there are mutants like a couple mm, yeah. of years down the line yeah and so i kind of like the circularity of having wolverine uh logan sorry back in that that way like as opposed to the sort of high sci-fi concepts that you see in x-men apocalypse and days of future past and stuff hmm. I mean, as well, because that's, I mean, that's, that's part of how the X-Men works best as well, in that the more grounded you have it, the, the better the allegory works. And, you know, so in that sense, something I wanted to say as well is that I think the tone of this movie, like while you were saying earlier, Joe, it's not necessarily your ideal superhero movie. I think the tone fits the character better than, say, a, a quippy Marvel Universe type movie would. Oh yeah, no, I wouldn't. I wouldn't want this movie to be like an Avengers movie. I wouldn't want a Wolverine movie to be like that. Um, what I'm just saying is that it, when when we're talking about how high praise we can we can you know lavish on this movie, for me it's always going to be slightly held back by. I, I can appreciate why someone would think that it's incredible and one of the best superhero movies ever made. I, I, it will just never be that for me because I prefer <laughs> something slightly different. But I think it, this goes back to something that Mike said very early on in this conversation as well, like about he's glad that this... You're, you, you said, Mike, you're glad that this movie exists. It's kind of the movie you've always wanted superhero movies to be able to make. Slightly yeah. continuity-free and all that kind of stuff. And... I'm glad it exists as well. And in part, we know it exists because of um, Deadpool, certainly in terms of the R rating and so the violence and the language and all that kind of stuff. Um, One completely unnecessary shot of boobs in there, (laughs) presumably because they had the rating and they thought, sure, let's put some boobs in there. Um, But I mean, to me, that felt a bit more like, let's make sure we get the rating. Yeah, well, possibly. Possibly. Um, but yeah, I, I'm, I'm glad that this movie exists because it, it seems like it's opening up superhero movies to be for lots of different types of people and audiences. It's like, I think it's a good thing in if you're going to be making four, five, six, seven superhero movies every year, that 
some of them, you know, last week you have a Lego version that you can take your kid to, and this week <laughs> is a version that people who like their bloody thrillers or people who want, um, like, if, if you think that's what this is, a more cerebral take on a superhero, that that's what this is, and that later mm. in the year you've got another, you've got a high school Spider-Man movie that teenagers can go to and enjoy, and, and Guardians of the Galaxy, which is going to be more of a comedic bent, and then Wonder Woman, which might be more traditional... You know, the more traditional kind of straight take on a superhero. I, I'm. This is what I want. I want the variety, and I think the Marvel Cinematic Universe tries to put forward a bit of variety within its confines. Um, but I, I think it's great that this is coming from Fox in particular, yeah. and that and that it seems like Fox are offering something different to what Marvel are offering, offering, but that. They are with Deadpool and Logan. They're both to some extent good, uh, which is not something that Warner Brothers and DC have been able to offer so far with their with their more serious takes on superheroes. I mean, because I, I I don't know about you, Mike. Given given your kind of lukewarm response, but this kind of film with this somber approach to Logan versus the somber approach to Batman and Superman we've seen so far, this is mean- going to be. This you're is going to be hugely preferable, right? You're including Christopher Nolan in that, or are you just saying since that well, took over? Not really. No, I wasn't. <laughs> since, well, I mean, kind of the DC extended universe. The movies that we've got right now, I mean, basically. Yes, this is preferable, and probably it is more comparable to the Christopher Nolan, like at least the Dark Knight version of Batman, mm. because it really feels like Wolverine in a, in a in a very different genre movie as opposed to what Marvel say they're doing. In with each you know, Doctor Strange <laughs> versus Ant Man versus Guardians of the Galaxy being different genres, when really that's really a very narrow band of, of filmmaking. This one's um, a heist movie because four seconds of it involve a heist. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, they, you know, and I felt that strongly with Doctor Strange. Uh, I know that you were you really did like it, Joe, didn't you? Yeah, I did. Um, yeah. But I I felt like that film could have been so much more off the reservation than it was. Um, and it, where it felt very much stock Marvel for me, uh, with very slight deviations. Whereas I really did like Ant Man, which I saw for the first time over Christmas. I watched it on telly, and I feel that that was just a different energy g- given the cast. But well, uh, you know, sorry, Logan really does feel like something different. I think what what gives me pause is when, and this probably speaks to how, uh, in particular, certain British critics um, have been, in, you know have been nerdified or geekified um the headlines coming out with some of these reviews were saying they finally get wolverine right and it's like but they've been getting him right with hugh jackman all along that characterization is brilliant Mm. that's that's, he's never been the 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 weak point in any of the x-men movies he's always actually been what saves most of them (laughs) even x-men apocalypse where he shows up for one scene like that was my favorite scene in the whole movie just because that was it was wolverine doing a version of wolverine from the comics like it was the most comics-esque thing in it hmm yeah, and and I mean, talking on Hugh Jackman, and we will move into spoilers um, in a second. But one of the things that struck me here, I, I was thinking about. So, if this is Hugh Jackman's last outing as this character, and we don't see him in the role again, I was thinking, I, I don't think it'll be immediate or anything like that. But we will see another Wolverine on screen. We will see another actor in this role, and. I imagine it'll probably be similar to the first time, you know, when they tried to replace Christopher Reeve as Superman. 
when they cast someone someone other than him because that's an iconic portrayal of that character and it took decades and I don't think anyone's as good as Christopher Reeve as Superman but I also don't think we see Henry Cavill turn up and go no that's not right that's not that character I think we accept that Henry Cavill is playing Clark Kent and Superman I think we will eventually I think we will eventually be able to see someone else in this role and you talk about getting this character right and this you know critic saying this is finally them getting Wolverine right there are still things about Hugh Jackman that aren't Wolverine from the comics. He's not. Mm. He's not ostensibly Canadian. He's not. Um, <laughs> he's not. Sh- I mean, because the one thing that I kept thinking in this film was how big he looked, how lumbering he looked, mm. because he's got that that very specific way of walking in this film that he kind of seems like he's dragging himself along. He feels <laughs> like a big. He feels like a big unit of a man. Um, so what I, I just thought that there probably there probably is um there probably is you know the potential for them to come back and do this differently in the past in, in the future um with this with this character but there's no denying that if you take those 10 performances nine and a half eight and a bit um that Hugh Chapman <laughs> has given as this character um they're all t- you know he's He's done something really special here, and I don't think anyone will ever forget how good he is in this yeah, role, so no, has. no matter when he gets replaced. Yeah, and it makes me think, and this is a bit of a curveball and left turn, it makes me think of Star Trek, because <laughs> just thinking of the 17 years and 10 films, and he you know, had a producer-creative role in shaping the character in the later films, I was trying to think, has anyone ever had that? Control. And the only other example I can think of is, you know, Leonard Nimoy and William Shatner to varying degrees yeah. of success in those Star Trek movies. And I guess when they come around to recasting, um, you know, Wolverine slash Logan, it will be like Chris Pine and Zachary Quinto as Spock and Kirk. Yeah, the, the, there's a very big I think, legacy. Yeah. In I think before before they pick a new Wolverine for the movies, what we need is the Dean Cain version of Wolverine. <laughs> Oh, just, was, just to I, show I, you the bottom, <laughs> the bottom rung. I put mean, it in some context. Don't slam right. Dean Kane. Yeah, no, <laughs> I like I like Lois and Clark, but as a version of Superman, it's fair to say he's not inspired by Christopher Reeves. Hmm. No, the, uh, I was thinking Clark this though. There are there are certain characters. I mean, that we've DC are, are, are getting to the point where almost all of their characters have been popping up at TV at some point. But it seems like there is a reticence to actually have Batman on the TV screen because I'm not sure they want a budget kind of crappy version of Batman out there, even in the even in the consciousness. Like I liked <laughs> Tyler Hecklin in in Super in Supergirl as Superman, uh, but he is a he's a budget version of that character. There's no there's no doubt about. It and mm-hmm. um, I think that Wolverine is another one of those that I think it would be you'd be mad to put him on TV. You you need to like Wolverine has almost we talk about the nineties heyday of X Men. Now I think Wolverine as a brand is maybe as big, if not bigger, as X Men as a as a team as a brand. Oh, for sure, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, there are so many people I'm talking to on a daily basis who will only go and see these films because of Hugh Jackman as Wolverine. He mm-hmm. you know he is the star to them. I spoke to somebody at work uh, yesterday and they said they're seeing it three times in the next week because she's <laughs> such a big Logan Hugh Jackman fan. <laughs> oh, I like so, so I bit I bit my tongue when she said that. <laughs> but yeah, I I I think Fox would be mad if they touch this character within the next 5 years uh, at the very at the very least. Personally, I I think 
they won't recast Wolverine until they reboot continuity because that'll be a big selling point is here's the new Wolverine. Yeah. But yeah. like to put... It's assuming that Fox ever reboot continuity. Well, or quite. acknowledge that there is a continuity. <laughs> Just as soon as Simon Kimberg meets his fate, his deserved fate... Can I can I can I say um, the the point where I first gr- like kind of grimaced at this movie was during the opening credits when the um, you know it's flashing up with like Fox Twenty First Century Fox presents blah 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 and uh, Simon Kinberg's company is Kinberg Genre so it comes up with a Kinberg Genre movie <laughs> and it's like oh Simon Kinberg you smug so and so it's like <laughs> yeah I don't know why I'm sen- I'm I'm, we- I'm censoring myself here for the PG thirteen version. <laughs> Yeah, it's not the podcast to do that on my. <laughs> um, one last point before we before we get into our spoiler filled section, um, and I don't, I don't. This is not a spoiler. It's in all the trailers. Wolverine still has his metal claws in this movie. And just before we started the podcast, I tweeted out and said, "Did anyone have any questions that they wanted to ask on the podcast or anything that wanted explaining?" Um, and Lewis Strong tweeted saying how did logan get his metal claws back after the last wolverine film um and someone else asked something similar um well i mean james leach asked did they ever plan to follow up on the changes to wolverine's past that happened in days of future past no idea whether logan addresses this or not um we should we should put out there that in terms of if you've got any niggling continuity issues that were brought up by days of future past or wolverine getting his metal claws back or whatever this is not this is not the movie for you, is it? <laughs> uh, James, did you did you just have to kind of let that go at the door? Well, like the previous few films screwed that up to such a degree that by this point I kind of didn't care anymore. Yeah. Like I wasn't sitting there wondering like how did he get his metal claws back because I already knew they weren't going to address it. And like in the past I've written quite lengthy articles about why the sort of hands-off approach to continuity is a bad thing because it means you can't watch the film and be thinking about the film you're asking questions that aren't going to get answered Hmm. but in this case i think so early on they downplay all of the connections to previous movies that they sort of get away with it yeah i i told you i thought my my uh come to god moment was during the uh the first trailer for Logan and I just went right I don't care anymore I'm just taking these films they, they don't care I don't care I'm just gonna <laughs> accept that the continuity doesn't matter and I think the film does in that regard like I said earlier have its cake and eat it as well in that it 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 establishes some stuff and makes and tries to elicit empathy based on things that you've that has have happened earlier in the franchise whilst also going but actually don't care about that <laughs> And I think I think at this point it's fine. I think sometimes it and it always will be slightly distracting. Uh, but so I, I wasn't I wasn't tied up in this film going, where is where is claws still adamantium? I just went because they are. Yeah, nitpicky uh, stuff like that. It, it manages to distance itself enough. Although it does seem weird that the Wolverine was the film that took away his adamantium. Um, and this is James Mangold coming back with a film two <laughs> years later, where they're still, <laughs> three years later, where they're where, where they're still they are still adamantium, but he doesn't want us to ask why. Even I mean, he was the one who did it in the first place. At the end of Days of Future Past, they turn up and go, Wolverine, we need your help. And then Days of Future Past opens like twenty years later or something, and it's oh, like yeah, you you mean, um, you mean <laughs> we need your help Wolverine. in twenty years? Wolverine, yeah. yeah, sorry, yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. That, that and, stinger is a low point in X-Men continuity. <laughs> <laughs> and I did ask you after the screening, we went uh, when we were having pizza afterwards, to t- tie it together, James, and you kind of you seem to think that this was set in the same timeline as the reset timeline of Apocalypse. Yeah. Yeah, if it's going anywhere, it's in the in the reset timeline that is established at the end of Days of Future Past. Although yeah, I would agree with that. Although, like you would have for that to work, you have to assume that Professor X ages very rapidly in the next yeah. six years. Because does he say in the trailer how old he is? That's the line in the trailer, right? Well, they yeah yeah yeah. He says he's in his nineties or something, but I specifically, I think it's, like, yeah, it's yeah. set. It's explicitly set in twenty twenty nine. I think yes, correct. Which yep. places it six years after 2023, which is the end of Days of Future Past. Future Past. So a lot so, happens in those six years. Yeah. <laughs> Quite. Yeah. Okay, which is, which well, is where I start to get a bit kind of screwy in terms of my enjoyment of the film, because <laughs> and, and, I, and I've managed to sit all, that, sit all out the door for nearly all the other films, but then once they start to say things like the dates and the yeah. ages of the characters, that starts to make me think, where does this actually help? Yeah, anyway. Yeah. We can, re- we can, can talk spoilery about that. Yeah, I can I can understand that. Um, and I <laughs> have a, a question slightly related to that that I will um, throw at you at the start of our spoiler-filled section. Um, but what we'll do is we'll take a break now. We'll uh, So anyone who hasn't seen the film yet can escape, go watch the film and come back. Um, so we'll listen to a little bit of the trailer and then we'll launch into our spoiler-filled discussion of Logan. Hello. You know you gotta pay for that, right? Hey, come on. Not okay! We got ourselves an X-Men fan. Maybe a quarter of it happened. And not like this. In the real world, people die. Logan. I don't want to talk about it. Logan. Just stop. Be careful. I need the girl. What girl? Go get her. No. And we're down. She's like you. Very much like you. I am not whatever it is you think I am. She needs our help. Someone will come along. Someone has come along. This is what life looks like. People who love each other. A home. You should take a moment. Feel it. You still have time. (laughs) 
Okay, so um, we should have lost everyone that doesn't want to be spoiled on any aspects of this film. Um, now, the first spoiler I'll, I'll reveal is um, we were all speculating from the trailers uh, what what was going on with Wolverine. Like, so he had scars on his body now, and if this was set in any kind of continuity, how come his healing power wasn't working? And what, how, you know, wh- why was all this going on? And so basically, the film reveals that he's effectively being poisoned from the inside by his adamantium, isn't he? Mm-hmm. Is that have, have I yeah. read that? I've read that correctly. Yeah. Okay. So my main first spoilery question would be. After he got it removed in the Wolverine, why did he go back and get it put in again? Like, what, <laughs> what happened there? Okay, in, in fairness... How does the same shit happen to the same guy twice? <laughs> in fairness, right, in the Wolverine, it only comes off those few claws, doesn't it? It doesn't come off his whole skeleton. Oh, does it not? Yeah. So maybe it just... Maybe it re... Maybe the adamantium is like sentient and has regrown over the rest of the claws. I, I think know. I think Brian Singer in an interview recently said that the speculation was Magneto put it back on his claws or something. He was like, that's not in the film, but that was in his head that that was a thing that happened. Oh, I mean, I could buy that. Yeah. I mean, you've read Fatal Attractions, haven't you? Where the opposite happens. Um, no, I don't think I have. Have I? You have, because I told you to read it. <laughs> Which one was that? That's, it's a big crossover. Oh, yeah. Uh, where yeah, yeah. Magneto gets his mind wiped. Yes, okay. Yeah, no. Yeah. That was the early 90s big crossover. Yep. That was nuts. That was one of the most intimidating ones, James. <laughs> That's as good as it gets. <laughs> okay, so in terms of, let's let's get all of this stuff out of the way, because it's the stuff that's not ultimately really going to matter in terms of our conversation. <laughs> all of the, the kind of wider X-Men continuity... Mike, what was it that was what was it that was niggling at you? What were the little continuity things or the the hints to the wider franchise that kind of bugged you a little bit? Oh, it's not necessarily the hints that were bugging me. It's just that if they're going to set the film after some cataclysmic event where it seems that Professor X has a seizure and kills all the X Men, mm. I want to see that movie, <laughs> um, or I want that to be part of this story. As oh opposed God, to how good would that flashback have been? I know exactly. I want this. I want to see that um, because it feels a bit like a writing cheat. And I know, I know that James, you say that a lot of this stuff, like adamantium poisoning, has basis in the comics. But it feels like a way to turn your all-powerful superhero into a vulnerable character for a character-driven movie. So it, that's what I mean by things niggle at me, where it's it feels like um, what if you want to wipe out all those characters, but keep Professor Xavier, um, it's almost just too much of a reminder of what you're missing out on because uh, we can probably get deeper into what we feel that Logan's arc across the entire 10 film appearance uh, cycle is. But to not have Gene there seems strange. Mm. And then for this also to be the end of Xavier's story and not have Eric there seems very strange. I wonder whether Um, they think that they've kind of, I mean, to... The, I mean, because I, I don't think this is the end of Xavier's story because we, I, even if we never see Patrick Stewart again, which he's said he's not returning, mm. but we've got James McAvoy still in that role and I think we're all but certain to be seeing him in the New Mutants movie next. Um, I think that character is going to go on and I think we're going to see more Magneto. I'd be surprised if we didn't. Um, 
I mean the end of his this... story, as in the literal end, the spoilery I... end of his story. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. If, if Mangold and uh, Hugh Jackman are envisioning that, it, it feels like a disregard for the franchise as a whole to use I, I, Xavier in, in that way. I just, I think it feels a little bit different. So what I'm saying basically is I kind of, I agree with you on Logan, um, mm-hmm. less so on Professor X, but I, 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 I get your drift. But yeah. I think this film has to, it has to be fully focused on Logan. We can't be, we can't be too concerned with, with Professor X really, mm-hmm. because uh, you you mentioned this kind of like uh, briefly. Should we compare it to the Nolan Batman movies? And I think that's a good comparison because the, the Nolan Batman movies, for all that they have a big extended cast and they have villains that come in and steal the show in each individual movie, it's a movie that is focused on the main character and kind of his loneliness. And even though he has these relationships with people like Commissioner Gordon and Alfred and all of them that it's a film that's really zeroed in on him and his interior life. And that's what this movie felt like to me, that yes, there was Caliban and there was X-23 and there was Professor X, but they were there to shed light on him rather than mm. to have any kind of big profound moments themselves. Yeah. And while it's great to have Professor X there um, and to have Patrick Stewart as Professor X because he's, you know, he's getting to do loads of stuff in that role here that... Uh, probably never dreamed we'd see him <laughs> doing um, <laughs> that. Uh, yeah, it, it is all reflecting back on Logan, and I do wonder. I mean, in in regards to not having Gene there, I bet James Mangold thinks that he handled that side of things in the Wolverine, and I, guess. I think the franchise probably feels that it signed it off in Apocalypse with that scene where Sophie Turner looks at. Uh, I mean, Jackman. I would disagree. That scene's horrible, but um, I, I can understand why they probably think that they didn't need to address that here. H- having said that, I would, I would, I would love to have seen that one scene, that flashback, because it's easy. It is easy to to go, oh shit, Professor X killed all of the other X Men. You're imagining. I don't know. Like I, in, in my head, I was imagining James Marsden Cyclops and very <laughs> Storm. Poor guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he d- d- dead again. Um, <laughs> but yeah, all all of those characters and like you know um, Anna Paquin's Rogue and um, uh, I was about to say Juno's Ellen Page's. Um, and Kelsey uh, Grammer's Beast is in this timeline now, right? Again, yes. Yeah. Uh, so all, him as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, like, it's like a scene from Dead Red Dwarf, isn't it? What about what about Magneto? Yep, he's dead Logan. They're all dead Logan. What about <laughs> What about Toad? Yep, dead Logan. They're all dead Logan. What about What about my my brother dead Logan? They're all dead. <laughs> but I mean so the I think the implication was that Professor X had been responsible for the death of maybe seven or eight of the core X Men team and then I the think they say the number, don't they? They say like yeah. Do they yeah. Do they say seven X Men or several X Men? Oh right. Well. I don't think it would be the world's X Men though. I think I, I think that yeah. the the company that Rice has and the military are all have kind of been involved in that. Mm-hmm. Uh it felt like another Trumpy riff. And to say something positive about the film, it really is, you know, uh, Hugh Jackman and Wolverine all the way through has sort of been the Han Solo of the franchise where he's a really strong supporting character that's the connective tissue throughout all of them, but uh, has certain maybe restrictions on his character type that have prevented him from being a really satisfying protagonist. But in this one, he really is the protagonist of the story. 
yeah, um, and they build absolutely. a film around him. I think the Patrick Stewart casting and the use of Xavier maybe is a way to make it feel a bit more proper because once you take him out of the equation, you have a lot of not even necessarily B-list actors um, in in char- playing characters that you know, Caliban was in Apocalypse, right? Or was it Days of Future Past? But like, not this version of Caliban. So, and Richard E. Grant is somehow now back on the international scene. He was also in Jackie, um, the Oscar movie with um, <laughs> Natalie Portman. So it's really strange New to see agent. him acting again um, as sort of English baddie. Um, but maybe they they said we need somebody big like Charles Xavier as a character just to give a, a firm rooting. Because otherwise, yeah. we just have a bunch of faces people may recognise from telly or films in the 90s. It um, feels like this movie is setting out to be a little bit more proper. Do, do mm. you know what I mean by that? That, like, it it isn't... Although there is all this X-Men stuff in there, I felt that this was missing all of the comic book silliness of the second half of The Wolverine, or all of X-Men Origins Wolverine, aside from maybe one one element that's introduced in the second half of the film that I really didn't like. Um, I mean, I can say it now, the X-24 Wolverine oh God. clone. I just... Yeah. <laughs> that's interesting, because I really enjoyed that introduction. Like, I... I thought that was a really good way of sort of dramatising his internal sort of conflicts with within... Like, I mean, it's something they don't talk about much in this film, but as a running thread throughout Wolverine's comic appearances, certainly is the the idea that he has this inner rage that he mm. shouldn't submit to. And in this film, then they, it's almost yeah. like it's his it's his quest to almost embrace that. In this film, it's to mm. go back to that feral origin. Well, I mean, specifically, they they show what Wolverine would be like if he did submit to that inner rage and essentially what you've got is Sabretooth. He even yeah. looks like Sabretooth when he's first announced, when he's first kind yeah, of revealed. Exactly. I, okay, think that, good, I think this is a good point to uh, bring in one of the questions that was asked oh. on Twitter from Mark Harrison. Would it have been better with Liev Schreiber instead of X-24? To which I would answer, yes. Yes, because yeah. that's, the that's the other arc element in Wolverine's story. Okay, it's completely messed up by the prequel, but, um, <laughs> or, well, I guess... Is the prequel the better version of Sabretooth? I can't. I can't really t- tell at this point. I think but. Liev Schreiber is fantastic in X Men Origins Wolverine, mm. and that's a very silly movie. But Liev Schreiber plays that kind of pure feral version of the bad side of Wolverine really mm. well, and the fights and the interactions they have in that film are the highlights of it. And so, if Liev Schreiber had turned up here as maybe a an experimented on version of Sabretooth, a kind of a, a, a changed version, like yeah. completely. So I, I thought that might have been nice, but it felt a bit like because this franchise has had James Mangold for the second two movies, but didn't have him for the first, it almost felt a bit like, you know, in the Bourne Ultimatum that <laughs> Paul Greengrass is like, interested in looking back at his second movie, but maybe not the first one very much. Yeah. That, it was just, we're going to erase the origins memory from everyone's mind and just pretend it never happened. I mean, just to defend against the kind of knee-jerk, it would be better because it would form a form a solid arc. Like, if you put Sabretooth in this movie, then what you do is create a situation where the film has to be about Sabretooth as well. Yeah. Because, like, that's, that's Wolverine's only living family, essentially, and he's got no X-Men to fall back on anymore. So it's like, 
it changes like he's no longer alone as well if Sabretooth is around and so in a sense i can see why they decided not to use the character and the baggage that comes with him i think as well, i think as well um i think i prefer even though the execution of x24 isn't exactly perfect for me i think thematically both um inside the film and outside the film it works because it's almost it's hugh jackman fighting a version of himself that he'll never be able to attain again so it's like he will never be as ripped as x-men origins wolverine ever again because he's getting old mm. um so i, I mm-hmm. think that as as a final film and a swan song for the actor as well as the character there is something built in there about how wolverine in this or logan in this film is is aging in the way that hugh jackman is but he will so he he will never be that so you have to commit to mortality yeah. i mean that's tell you what that's... I'd, have, I'd have loved to have seen and i don't think the technology is there to do it but i would have loved to have seen <laughs> the wolverine as he looks in x-men show up like, oh, I'd, I'd have liked, <laughs> I'd, I'd liked that version like for him literally to look like a you know wolf hugh jackman in his mid-20s with the proper wolverine hair and the white <laughs> wife beater and jeans and whatever you know the, the original costume um, hey if they can do it in tron legacy they couldn't um <laughs> so that, i don't, I don't, the subtext. Mean, I don't mean the text there to make it convincing yet which is i mean i don't probably they probably never consider doing that but um that's what i'd have quite liked to have seen but i mean it is it is a striking visual um wolverine fighting against himself it's just i don't i don't know why it struck me when it happened at I had a panic where I was like, oh God, are we in the Wolverine territory all over again? Hmm. Is this about to go down a really silly comic book hole in the in the, in the the second half? Because there's no <laughs> denying that that happens in the Wolverine. They suddenly introduce the, what was she called? The serpent character. Viper. Viper and Silver Samurai. And it just, it just gets bogged down in silliness. And I yeah. was worried when the, Hugh Jackman clone turned up that that's what we were getting. Uh, fortunately, I I don't think we are, and we've got Richard E. Grant as a villain. We've got Boyd Holbrook as a villain, and we've got this X twenty four clone as a villain. Mm-hmm. Um, but in I would say in the best way, none of them ever really congeal as the into the main threat. the The threat is more kind of it's. It's mortality more, yeah yeah no it is it is um especially when we've got Chekhov, sadamanti and bullet hanging around the entire <laughs> way through the movie. um which <laughs> they ring back up about halfway through and i was like don't worry guys i haven't forgotten you know it's not, it's not the kind of detail you forget um I think but you hit yeah. upon something there where, um, you know, it would have been maybe nice to have nods to the relationships with Gene or with Rogue or with Sabretooth, but this is a project that creatively is driven by the star who's lived within that character for this long. Mm. And so all these themes are so internal and to, you know special to the character and it's defined by that. So facing up to a mirror version of himself or the theme and the stakes being completely internal about mortality and Mm. personal in that way kind of speaks to how the project is formed and speaks to what I was saying about how it really feels like the film Hugh Jackman wanted to make because why would Hugh Jackman want to make a film where he brings in other characters and other other actors when (laughs) he's so interested in Logan as a character and I think it I think it all comes together in terms of a bigger franchise and and the way that Hugh Jackman has gone through it because we we 
whenever we've had glimpses of Wolverine's past, and because he kind of has the past before X-Men Origins Wolverine and the past after he loses his memory before he joins the X-Men, you, you see him as this loner guy who doesn't care about anyone really and it's the people around him that... It's people like Rogue um, and Jean who, during the course of those movies... He forms attachments to, he forms bonds with, and he becomes a kind of a better person. And the version of him that we see at the start of this movie almost feels like more of the original kind of Wolverine, but even even worse almost, that he's kind of, he feels like he's looking after Professor X out of an obligation. He certainly mm. doesn't care about Caliban because he's going to abandon him when he goes off with Professor X. And you see him routinely turning down the opportunity to help people and doesn't even really consider. He keeps having to be told by Professor X why it's a good idea. And so I liked, I liked it kind of almost as a this film kind of taking Wolverine's arc from all of the X-Men films and squishing them into one movie, which is how do we make this guy who is a loner and a damaged loner at that care about other people and ultimately look out for other people at the expense of himself. And so as, as an, as an overall arc and an overall kind of journey for the character, I thought they did a great job of that and I thought they paced the relationship with Laura X-23 really well in that regard What did you think of her? I, I quite liked Daphne Keane, I thought she was she had a real presence to her but I did feel halfway through you've introduced this female character and she's not spoken Yeah, yeah um, I, I really liked her, I thought she was um, so visually she's great casting like with the slightly i don't know there's something about her eyes that is like it's um she's cute but unsettling at the same time you know you she's like a female damien in the omen or something but so she, well, she has, has a that... millie bobby brown quality to her doesn't she well that's what i was thinking i was thinking she is like 11 in stranger things except um i i preferred i preferred uh, Daphne Keane here than okay. Bobby Brown. I d- I've not really bought into Stranger Things as a thing. It's like riffing on a lot of things that I like, um, but with I think without any characterization. <laughs> like, yeah. um, I, I would say uh, Eleven in Stranger Things is her, her one mode is mysterious, and I thought <laughs> that we at least got two modes out of um, <laughs> out of uh, X23 here and I thought that when when she did talk um I thought she was uh, I thought she was engaging and Is it um, the first line of dialogue which, which she has where she's just kind of really just like screaming at him at a really fast pace Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner 3 days in a row dreaming of something better Well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby It's me Kiki Palmer Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. 
So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Chatting. Like, the first thing seat. she says is he like thanks her for, 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 the, for, you know, taking him to the clinic or whatever. And she just says, Dinada. And then he's like, wait, you can talk. And then, yeah, then she <laughs> fully explodes it. Uh, yeah, she, she's great. What did you think of her, James? Because you probably, you probably as well have context for X23 that Mike and I don't have. Yeah, although I never really liked X23 as a character in the comics. Partly because, like, in the comics she's raised as, like, Weapon X from day one. So, whereas they try to brainwash Wolverine, they decide to raise her as the perfect killing machine. So she's got this thing where she, like doesn't have emotions and she's supposed to be inscrutable but to me it comes across as uninteresting so sort of there have been what 15 years of x23 comics that i've just not cared about right um and then this version of the character who is a bit younger comes along and i was fully bought into the idea like in much the same way hugh jackman has this kind of he's more wolverine than wolverine quality Hmm. she's more x23 than x23 like i think the comics version will suddenly be reworked to to move closer to this version somehow yeah and and you've you've mentioned on the podcast previously about how wolverine has these kind of paternal relationships with female characters in the comics like people Mm -hmm. like rogue well rogue's the stand-in in in x-men isn't she but people like kitty pride um yeah jubilee yeah and so that and and that's the vibe they've got here, basically. Well, I mean, he's literally, we mm-hmm. find out he's, DNA-wise anyway, he's her father. Yeah, although that, there, was, there was a that's, moment... That's movie canon, right? That's not comics canon. Well, in the comics, she she's a clone of him who's been altered to be a female because the female embryos survive better. Right. Um, although there was a moment in this film, like you were talking earlier about how they didn't really wrap up the Jean Grey arc. Hmm. And there's a moment when Professor X says to him, like, doesn't she remind you of anyone? <laughs> I wasn't thinking, oh, she reminds me of Wolverine. I was thinking, she reminds me of Jean Grey. And I thought they were going to oh, really? suggest and that th- he was, that she was like the genetic child of Jean Grey and Wolverine. And that's at a specific moment where, I know I mentioned this to you, James. I wonder if you spotted this, Joe. In that scene, um, the camera is placed like outside the car, outside the window, and she's like staring out. Um, staying out the window, flicking the um, the kind of car lock up and down, mm. and you it, then it cuts to inside, and you can see she's flicking a switch on the inside. But when Xavier's saying, "Does she remind you of anyone?" Yes. It looks like she might be doing it <laughs> telepathically or telekinetically. Mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. I was wondering whether we were gonna. I thought that scene was gonna be a flip that we thought that X twenty three was playing with it, and it turned out it was Xavier doing it with his mind. Mm-hmm. So. <laughs> I think we probably all read that scene slightly differently because I, I, the the Jean Grey thing never occurred to me. Um, I'd be surprised if if that. I, I would say that's maybe just slightly confused filmmaking that they. I, I, didn't it has a little. It has a few little kind of nods like that or winks, like the samurai sword above his bed. Yes, and maybe I don't know. Maybe maybe such stuff that I didn't pick up on because I was sat in like the fifth row in an IMAX screen. <laughs> but um, I, I felt like those were two bits where they did wink, and the um, the use of the comics, while very b- broad and sledgehammery, was was that. I was a bit disappointed with how they in the in the trailer it looked like they were going to use the comics in an interesting way, 
really what you see in the trailer <laughs> is what's in the film. Yeah. It's just him saying, yeah, it never <laughs> happened that way. I think it's more you- it's more the idea, again, with... I, I think it, it's a good thing in the world building, and maybe it, it, that was if you'd have just seen it in the film, you wouldn't have thought, oh, that's disappointing, they could have done more with that. Because I, I, for me, it just felt like this is a world that is post-mutant, but they almost kind of live on like legends. So there are the yeah. action figures, and the which the kid had, the kid with the oh, yeah, true, action yeah. figure, who might be my favourite of the gang of the rest of the mutants. <laughs> that kid was great. The, with the electricity powers was great. Um, <laughs> but the, I, I actually thought that that whole gang. You, I can't be the only one that walks out of the film going, "How cool would they? Would it be if they made a film with all of these non-famous?" ethnically diverse kids as a bunch of like prepubescent X-Men. That would be such a fun movie to watch. I would be <laughs> I would be so so up for that because this movie ends basically in a in a you know they've taken down Rice and Pierce and all of the bad guys that have come after them, but they're all working for someone else. There's still this complex out there. There's <coughs> there's still bad shit going on in the world. I mean, also, they're the only mutants that are left. Like it'd be cool to see them going and kicking ass and taking names and re-establishing mutants in the world. There is that really big sort of uh, dangling thread as well, which is that in the film, the film as the film starts, no new no new mutants are being born. And in the course years, of it, say, yeah. yeah, they reveal how that's come to be the case. Yeah, but none of the characters individually put the pieces together. It's something that's left for the audience. Yeah, so it's it's all been cut. So Rice says something, doesn't he, about like they started messing with the food and soft drinks. Yeah, so, yeah. and obviously when uh, you go and see Eric and LaSalle, we've got the corn, we've got the yeah, corn, the corn syrup fields, field, yeah. which which is like nodding to that as well. Yeah, which so is basically, an amazing like sci-fi if, concept that they kind of just have in the margins. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, if any, like, for anyone who maybe missed that, like, the implication is that genetically modified corn syrup, which is like the basis of the economy now or whatever, is is modified in such a way as to prevent the mutant gene emerging naturally. Hmm. So, get rid of the corn mutants, syrup. Yeah, you can bring if, the mutants back. If they get rid of that, they can bring back mutants, and it's like it's a hopeful moment in a film that is otherwise about everything ending. Yeah, yeah. I mean, because I I came out of this film going actually, uh, well, I went into it thinking this is almost going to be like a, like you said, um, Mike, it's like a more standalone version of the film that the continuity is not going to be as important. That I mean. As soon as 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 long as you are able to kind of go, okay, I don't really care about how it fits into what's come before, and like that it's only six years since Days of Future Past. Um, <laughs> I was surprised that at the end of it, I would have thought this would be a story that would end and would feel self-contained, and that would be fine, and I could enjoy or not enjoy Logan, and then not have to think about it again. But I came out of this going. This is the first X Men movie for a long time that I've really wanted to see what comes next, and that's weird because um, there's no characters left that I really have a huge investment in outside mm-hmm. of Laura. Um, whereas you know, after Deadpool, I was like, "That's fun," but I don't really care about the world of Deadpool. The characters fun, but I don't care about the world. I don't really care what happens to the first class of mutant or the second class of mutants that we see introduced in Apocalypse. I don't need to see their ne- next adventure. I can kind of fill in the blanks. They grow up, and then the rest of the original trilogy happens. Just about. I can. I mean, 
but I want to see what happens next after this. I want to see these characters. I want to this this dystopian society is more interesting than the world presented in Apocalypse and Days of Future Past. <laughs> what I sort of see happening is X twenty three falling through a time hole and joining the <laughs> cast of the previous <laughs> films. Played by a different actor or something. <laughs> <laughs> I can um, see her being the cable of uh, of oh, the X Men film yeah. universe. Ariel Winter as X twenty three. No, I would. I mean, I I don't see any reason why you couldn't keep the same actress even. If, if no, I, I, was, no, yeah, I just yeah. meant in terms of the the franchise, you know, routinely tripping itself up. Yeah. Doing <laughs> stuff like that. Um, talking about kind of the end of things and the genre stuff and the use of comics, um, what did you guys think about how it lent very heavily on the tropes of the Western as a genre? So you have like the big, you know, use of the film Shane, which is funny because Shane is on film four all the time. So it's almost like <laughs> when they shack up at that hotel, they just turn on film four. And it's, and it's, 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 that, it's that thing in screenplays that I, I always find a bit lazy where it's like, oh, it's, it's you know, when, when you get to the eulogy that 11, uh, that 11, X23 has at the end, um, it's like, oh, good job. The only film she's ever watched is Shane then. So she has this monologue. Um, well, when it's playing very out, different like, if she had seen... Is, when Shane is on the TV, you are like, this is incredibly on the nose. Yeah, so on the nose. Um, but also, like, the, the the way they use the comics, when I said it was a bit obvious and straightforward, it's, it's like, you know, go back to any Western, especially revisionist Westerns from the 60s onwards to... Uh, assassination of jesse james the idea that there'd be characters legends in their own lifetime that have books written about them that exaggerate mm. their adventures and exploits and it just felt very all that western stuff felt very on the nose and i think quite short-sighted or superficial as a theme and as a genre to tap into because those revisionist westerns um were also the story of america um you know it these heroes were from a, a more whatever brutal or you know um, kind of a complicated time, and they had to pass. So you'd have these stories at the time, like films at the time, the nineteen sixties, like the man who shot Liberty Valance, which is uh, John Wayne and Jimmy Stewart, where you have the man of the West, um, John Wayne, giving way to the educated man of the East, who's kind of civilizing the West which is Jimmy Stewart, or you have what happens in Shane is this this lone gunman decides to clear up the valley and then go off and die in the distance, or maybe he doesn't die. That's that's kind of left to the audience's um, imagination. Or the shootist, which is John Wayne, who's dying from cancer, um, who has one last adventure um, with a young um, Ron Howard in tow. So there's lots of films here that like Mangold is, is playing with, and it, it felt like just a very superficial reading of those films just to give a bit of grit and texture to this film that I don't think kind of really is beyond the surface. Really, all that's passing in this film, while there is a a sense of the mutants, the the age of the mutants passing, it doesn't really because you have all those characters at the end that you want to follow. It's just a passing of Wolverine as a character. Yeah. Did you pick on all of that, Joe? Because I know James, I think it went a bit over James' James's head because he's more of a comics nerd, and but you're more of a film nerd. Yeah, I, I am. Although I've got to say, Westerns has never been kind of my uh, my forte or my area. I'm not, I've not, this, you know, there would be like key Westerns in cinema history that I've not... that I've not watched. I mean, basically the, the idea of like this... This one last adventure for Wolverine. This, uh, this kind of, 
this this guy who the world had kind of passed by was certainly there. And mm. I mean, I think just I think as soon as I think there's stuff in the first twenty minutes that you can see, like even just visually, that this is riffing on the idea of a western. And I mean, like the the opening sequence almost feels like a shootout, but like a a, a Wolverine style shootout, you know, with the mm. you know just the the one guy just trying to mind his own business and uh, you know just has to has to make some fools suffer for it. Um, <laughs> and then, but then when the Shane, when the Shane stuff comes along, it pretty much bashes you on the head. And so I kind of I kind of lost any idea of it being a riff on the Western in general, and just saw it as um, a riff on Shane. But I think you're pro- you're pro- you're probably right, Mike. It is a riff on Westerns more than others, um, more than Shane specifically. Uh, I I I would have just I I think maybe the, I think maybe the Shane the Shane insertion into the film uh, hits it on the head a little bit too hard. I think it it could almost have been just something that they like happened across and saw. Mm. Um, but you can imagine Hugh Jackman kind of getting excited, thinking that he's doing the superhero version of Clint Eastwood in Unforgiven or something like this. Mm. You know old weighed down by history and the, the 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 weight of you know many adventures and many loved ones lost having the final you know the, the societies against him histories are not on his side and he just has to bow out with one last adventure um, yeah i've got to say in in that regard um it felt it, this was another thing that felt very on the nose in the trailer but Johnny Cash's Hurt couldn't have been a better choice for a, <laughs> for a song to put on that first Logan trailer. It fits. Oh, totally. It fits so perfectly. Like the, the, I mean that you know that being a song that John, it was kind of Johnny Cash's, you know, last goodbye almost. Yeah. You know, a, a guy looking back at a life of regrets and feeling the weight of all of the stuff that he'd done, and kind mm. of being his own worst enemy in that moment. I mean, Hurt is a, is just a. And particularly Johnny Cash's hurt is just the perfect choice there, and I was surprised that it didn't feature in the movie. Although we do get Johnny Cash on the uh, on the end credits. Yeah, it's a, it's a different song, but in the at the kind of press screening that James and I were at, uh, they had that they were playing like a Johnny Cash playlist uh, oh. with this never ending slideshow of black <laughs> yeah, and white was like from the film. An hour, an hour's montage or something. I think not to get too sort of music nerdy, but that association with Johnny Cash and particular those final albums he made really intri- like really intrigues me as in, in in terms of what it how it it forms a reading of the film because yeah it's um, everything you said you know it's it's in Johnny Cash's voice the weight of history and experience but those recordings were sort of um, created by a producer. Um, to and and presented to Johnny Cash, you know they they said, oh Johnny, I think you, you know we've got a you know, here's a here's a list of modern songs that you must record, and we're going to you know make the perfect production surroundings. That's what Rick Rubin was doing. Get the right backing musicians and everything. It was a, it was a very very much a managed and produced swan song, or at least um, you know a, a managed or or produced kind of body of work. That is so interesting to feed into how Logan, some people think, is authentic, but really there is a lot of stylized filmmaking and choices behind it mm. um, that may, I mean, it's, maybe it's because I've just just listened to the audiobook of uh, The Cape Crusade on your recommendation, Joe, but um, any 
filmic version of a character that is you know anyone says is authentic or grounded or realistic is just as stylized as any others because there are stylistic choices behind every kind of creation of a character i mean this particularly uh, i mean you you you've talked about the western there but this like i say this this feels like so so deep into film genre you know that it it, it feels like a it feels like it's got so many riffs and influences and little things going on here and there that it's that it is an X-Men movie, but it is a Western, but it is just a straight up kind of like um, action flick or it's a road movie. Like it's got, it's got a bunch of tropes in there um, mm. and it's got a lot of stuff that it's playing with and that it's riffing on, which is, it, it can't possibly be like an authentic take on anything, but what it is, I think, and I think what it is ultimately, and you, if you strip everything away, is a character piece about yeah. this one guy and a and one guy who the film is very, is very lucky to be um, a guy that we know very well already, and we kind of know him inside out. And I'm not sure that we get any drastic new revelations into the character of Logan in this film. So what we do instead get is a two and a half hour goodbye to a character that we have a lot of affection for um but who we also know is deeply flawed and we want him to kind of because it i mean you can't be watching this movie an hour in and not think that hugh jackman that logan's gonna die at the end right <laughs> there's, there's there's only one way this movie's going there's no it doesn't there's there's never any hint of any kind of salvation for him and even the salvation for x23 and the other uh, and the young characters the film sets it up as if it's probably it's probably not there. There probably isn't any safe haven. There probably isn't anywhere safe that they can go to. Um, and so... I mean, I just, I take a sort of issue with the idea that Wolverine is definitely going to die at the end of the film. Why? Like, I can... Because maybe I've just watched too many superhero films where that's the obvious ending and it doesn't happen. But... Like, part of me wondered, like, are they going to end this film with the natural end to Wolverine as that he replaces Professor Xavier as the mentor to a bunch of X-Men kids? Yeah, I guess. And, like, that's that's a valid... That did flash out uh, across my mind at one point. Yeah, and, like, that's a valid sort of final story for the character is that he stops being Wolverine and becomes Professor X, essentially. Yeah. Like, it's not necessarily the best ending, but it's an ending that would be sort of thematically complete for the character but maybe that's where the story um you know the the, the the story when it's taking you down um you know through the narrative your expectations are colored more not necessarily by knowing the comics so knowing the comics you can read that as a potential outcome but before long it becomes you know, it made me think of Cormac McCarthy's The Road in particular the film version <laughs> where after a certain point you realize that no Viggo Mortensen the dad is is gonna is, is gonna has to cede to the next generation and after a while the mm-hmm. in the way that this film is after a while x23 is is driving the car and they're they're winching him up the cliff face which made me think they were going to have a simpsons gag that would have been pretty <laughs> would have been the best way to break the ice after two hours of gloom <laughs> um yeah but it, it they're, de- they're definitely playing with a much broader range you know range of maybe you know influences and you know, more than just the comics, I'd say. Also, mm-hmm. every half hour you have somebody saying, "By the way, Wolverine, those wounds aren't healing." Mm. 
Well, I, it's a, it's it's yeah, a, yeah. But it's I mean, it, it could have they could have been setting up that expectation. Yeah, uh, like I just think they could have been setting up that expectation in order to subvert it. Like, yeah. especially with the sort of text around the movie as well of this being Hugh Jackman's last film. Mm. Like, it never felt inevitable to me that he was going to die. Like, when when he died, it was sort of a surprise for me, even though you can go into the movie thinking, well, that's obviously going to happen because he can come back. I, so I, I, perhaps I mean, the thing is, like, he badly, could come back James. anyway. There's nothing stopping him. I, I think perhaps I expressed it badly in that... Um, I didn't go into the movie thinking he was going to die, but it it does become this steady build-up of just... It feels like the only natural endpoint for the movie that he could die, and it feels like it is wrapping up his story, and it feels like... You know, th- th- I mean, might you say about the wounds, we do keep... Ev- with every fight, he gets more and more debilitated. And at the point where he injects the full, you know, serum of that medicine into his arm so he can go full berserker rage, which I'm sure is the moment that, like, they've been wanting to do for five or six movies. Because we, we get some gnarly stuff from Logan, but that's the point where he really goes <laughs> properly nuts and starts flying through the air like he's the, the Wolverine we saw you know, four or five movies ago, but except this time he's going for headshots. Um, and at that, at that point, that was the moment where I was like, okay, this is, this is the last stand. We are, we are watching Wolverine. Uh, we're watching Wolverine die here and he's doing it. He's doing it for someone else. He's doing it for this group of young mutants, which in a way is fulfilling becoming the next Professor X, uh, kind of sacrificing yourself for the safety of um, giving up your life for the safety, the well-being and the future of mutant kind. So in in a way, he does become the Professor X of this movie. Um, And so, yeah, I, I just think it's that it's the film does a really good job of building and building to a point where yeah it could subvert it but it 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 would have felt so wrong to subvert that by the time you got to the end it felt like that was the that was the way the movie should end um and i i thought i thought that james mangold handled it really well the 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 funeral scene with the kids gathered around and her moving the the crucifix to be an x it could feel i think that could feel a little bit trite but i i in that <laughs> moment felt um felt like it was it had been handled really well and i, <laughs> I mean, and i also was expecting I, I i don't know i was i was expecting i wasn't even really kind of emotionally moved or upset at that moment it, i kind of felt like you know like it was it was the right ending for the character as well like it, he he was struggling with life life was painful for him and so it felt like a release i don't know i i, I thought they the, the final 10 20 minutes action aside um in in terms of the emotional beats for wolverine and the in the final moments of his life it the movie sold that to me entirely yeah i mean like i think was it last episode i got some shit for saying that i the start of it made me laugh (laughs) um I think and, you said, James, you don't like it when <laughs> movies make you uh, try to make you try to elicit emotion in you. Yeah. <laughs> what I said was, I what I meant was, I don't like it when that is their sole purpose. Like if, like the start of up was, let's make you cry, 
uh, and we're going to pull every trick in the book we can to do it. Whereas the ending of Wolverine, which did make me tear up, like I'm not ashamed to admit it. <laughs> like it was the bit specifically, it was the bit where she moves the crucifix so it's an X. Like I thought that was such a perfect little moment for the character and for Wolverine and you know for the X Men in general and. Like, I felt like that was so natural an ending that it it got the emotions that it wanted without being cynical about it. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I mean, for, for me, that, as well as being perfect for Wolverine, it's kind of, it's a, it's a broader point about sort of the X-Men in general that they're fighting to make the world better for the ones that follow them. And so it's not mm. as hard for the, for the next generation as it was for them. Well, I mean, that's, and like, I mean, that all, all those the themes kind of, of battle for civil rights and stuff as well, doesn't it? You know, well, yeah, the exactly, civil rights movement exactly. was, was, you know, underpinned by people giving their lives or giving their freedom for the, you know, for the wider cause. And that's, that's mm-hmm. what the X-Men movies have always been riffing on. So that, yeah, that feels appropriate. Yeah, and I think like even in the same way that Patrick Stewart was saying, like this is kind of a capper for the professor for Professor X. Like I, I sort of while there's part of me that looks and thinks, well, like if you want to do the last Professor X story, you have to have Magneto in there in some way. Like at the same time, I buy this as a final Professor X story, mm. as much as a final Wolverine story. Yeah, and one of the things that I that I I was thinking about here, and because you can you can keep going back to that whole idea of the 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 continuity of this franchise, but the what occurred to me was how how good a job this film does of selling you on this old, tired, haggard, um, physically and mentally broken Wolverine. When prior to this movie, we haven't seen him get to that point. In fact, if you like follow the timelines of these movies, the the, <laughs> the closest point to this in terms of the X Men timeline we've seen is the end of Future Past, which is pretty much Wolverine's single happiest, brightest moment in the entire franchise. <laughs> um, but I think it does a great job of like it. It fills in the gaps for you, and and because we've because we've spent so long watching Hugh Jackman as Wolverine, because it's been 15, 16 years, and because he has aged with the character, you know, like because he is now an older man that he that than he was when he took on this role. I think as much of it feels like you know you're watching. Yeah, there's there's an there's an investment in Hugh Jackman saying goodbye to this character that has been a huge part of his life as much as there is you saying goodbye to this character. I feel like it all kind of on a on a metatextual level kind of kind of feeds in in a way that all of the X Men continuity stuff doesn't need to have to take you there. You, you just you you've lived with this character for long enough. You've lived with Wolverine for long enough that you can buy that he's an older, torn up version of that character. Um, and the same with Professor X. And I guess they can bring both of them back. They can do stories with both of them. They could make they could maybe do a film where Magneto dies that is set somewhere in the middle, where you have you know Professor X and Magneto. But I don't really care about all of that stuff because I and. 
this this movie it functions <laughs> it well I, I could care about all of that but i think this movie functions in its own in its own right that i don't i don't need to see the steps that take the world from the point we saw in days of future past or even you know the team that we leave at the end of apocalypse to to, to get into this point even as the negative voice on this podcast i still think that that final 20 minutes especially Logan's route through the final 20 minutes, really did hit for me. The emotional beats did work. Um, and, yeah, I guess what Joe says is right, that they sell that lumbering, compromised, wounded, aged version of the character so well that when he does overdose on um, MacGuffin juice um, <laughs> and he's running and he is the Wolverine we love and we remember from the older films, there is the, I, I did have that rush of excitement. And but it was a melancholy sort of excitement because you know that he's taken the whole vial and whatever that means he's probably gonna die. Burn out, yeah. Um, but as a last hurrah, that is a yeah. It really nails that very well. Yeah, I, think I mean, oh sorry, good. Go on, James. Well, I was gonna say there's something interesting about the way this relates to the comic Old Man Logan, which is that 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 makes you wait as long as possible for the big moments of Wolverine becoming Wolverine again. Right. Um, and I wonder if they might have done slightly better if they'd had more economy in the action earlier on. Mm-hmm. Um, because then... there's not a massive difference between Wolverine at the end of the film, aside from that very short sequence. And the Wolverine we see earlier, who is still sort of holding his own in most fights. Yeah, it's just that first fight where he can't even get it up, so to speak, like, <laughs> with, his, with his claws. Yeah. Um, but, but yeah, uh, I know what you mean. But maybe that would be even a step too far, even for a radical, as radical a superhero genre movie as this, is to have, to yeah, have yeah. no <laughs> genre flourishes. Um, yeah, I think for the Patrick Stewart aspect, though, well, it is true. If you think about, in particular, the Patrick Stewart version of Xavier, once you take Magneto out of the equation, and maybe Gene, his second, his secondary character relationship is Wolverine and Logan. Mm-hmm. So you can see why they'd want to bring him in, as and then flip the the responsibilities. So you know, you know, Charles brought Wolverine in and tamed him and tried to put him in a family context and put him in a position of responsibility in the the school. Um, th- then you can see how, if Wolf- if Logan's the only survivor of whatever happens, he'd take that responsibility on his own shoulders. But then it is also as close as one of those superhero movies will ever come to a drama depicting looking after a an, an, a, a sort of dementia-ridden parent, which is surprisingly daring, really. Mm. <laughs> um, I mean, the part of the problem I had with. Professor X, and this is something we spoke about after the film, was that it doesn't necessarily feel like... It feels more like Patrick Stewart than Professor X. And I know that's something that tends to happen with genre characters like who who have like extended portrayals. Like, you know, Kirk became Shatner by the end of it. Like, yeah. the, the line between them was very thin. And that, to an extent, seems to have happened with Patrick Stewart and Professor X. Like, they say... Oh, you know, he's dementia riddled, so he's, you know, swearing, swearing. and making off-colour jokes or whatever. And it's like, well, 
that's something Patrick Stewart does more than Professor X ever did. Do you not think yeah. it feeds into the version that we've seen of Professor X in the prequels, though? Like, a little. It felt. But it felt I've like always had a. Pro- he always played this very um, upstanding Charles Xavier. Like everything about it, we we didn't really get many shades of grey and the and the prequels. While I prefer the Patrick Stewart version, you know, show him with a, a playboy past and you know not always making the best decisions and you know you see him forming that initial friendship with magneto that is never really explained in the original trilogy so i know what you mean james that it does feel like more like patrick stewart than the character but i also think that that helps sell it for me that we now have this more full rounded version of this character (laughs) yeah I, i don't think i particularly saw that character tracking with a version we'd seen before um, I can't really put my finger on it, but I think through this discussion, and I think as I've sat with the film, I, it's become less and less important to me. And it is. Did you pick up what he was ranting and raving about when he's in the when they when he hasn't had his pills at the beginning in the wheelchair? Is he like spouting Shakespeare or something, or what's, what's he doing? Yeah, yeah. It's he's... kind of like Patrick Stewart having his King Lear moment. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I, and that's what it felt like to me. It didn't really feel like any of the versions of Xavier we had so far would, even in the grips of an episode, go Shakespearean. <laughs> yeah, um, quite. Because he's a swinging 60s, you know, um, kind of fop, I guess, in, in, in first class. Mm. Um, Ultimately, yeah. though, I just... I mean, this is what I mean about it, it, it feeling like he's there to be... A, f- a function of the story for Logan rather than for him to be the for it to be any kind of sign off for Professor X um, because yeah it, it really doesn't feel like that for me it feels like that it's there for like like you say the the metaphor of like dealing for an ailing parent and to complete this kind of uh, off kilter family unit um, yeah. I mean that that scene at the dinner table where they're actually pretending to be <laughs> you know <laughs> grandfather father daughter is really great and when and, is, yeah. and, and when and when patrick stewart does get that sign off scene where you think he's talking to logan and he's actually talking to x24 um while the film didn't feel like a send off to professor x in in total that that scene felt like a really wonderful way to say goodbye to this character that we'd known for that hour of the movie, you know, like this, Mm. this dementia ridden Charles Xavier, um, who is kind of like a father figure to Wolverine at this point. And like I say, who I think the film does build towards Wolverine trying to be more like the person that professor X always thought he could be. He's returning to that version of himself. Um, that, Patrick Stewart gets a, a wonderful scene there, you know, it's a, yeah. and you you kind of, that's the moment where you want the movie to pause. Someone else said this on Twitter, in fact, um, Jonathan Cardwell, did you want that dinner table teen scene to go on for another two hours? Because I did. And yeah, yeah I, com- I completely understand that because this, it's the moment in the film that feels like almost, uh, you know, this like, this utopia in the middle of dystopia, you know, mm-hmm. it's, this, it's this perfect little moment and, you the you know what could be what could have been this you know this little this family unit which is what what the x-men always kind of reverts back to as well isn't it these little little mm-hmm. family units within, totally within the groups of characters um yeah. 
And I think that, you know, the, the X-Men franchise is one that's infamous for really fumbling its character deaths, and it's had quite a few <laughs> of them. Um, and, you know, Professor X has had a couple. Um, <laughs> but, but, you know, both of those big character deaths really do hit the emotional beat really well in this. And actually, even Caliban's final moment is, is kind of good. I didn't put, I, we've not spoken about him at all, have we? No, we haven't. Um, I th- <laughs> Stephen Merchant. Yeah, I, I like Stephen Merchant a lot, but I didn't particularly like him in this. Maybe because he felt like so much like the Bolton. Um, you know, he yeah. felt out. He he felt a little bit out of place because he has Stephen Merchant's accent. I think. I was yeah. going to say, like one, I find it very odd that they reused a character who was in Apocalypse, like in like not even reused in the franchise, like literally in I the last instalment. James Mangold does not care. He he doesn't like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's got no. He doesn't. He's doing what he's doing in his movie, and he doesn't care about the rest of it. I yeah, mean, but there's not there's not caring, and there is making a choice which is actively bad for your film, which is. But that's someone else making a choice. I think I think he probably had Caliban in this film already, and then saw that he was using Apocalypse, and just went, "Yeah, well, well, because he serves a plot mechanic, doesn't yeah. he?" And and you know yeah. what? I didn't even realize which one Caliban was in. Um, in, in X-Men Apocalypse until you were like, oh no, Caliban is the bald guy. And I was like, oh, He's okay. the cyber-goth Berlin guy. Yeah, right? but I thought, I was say, I I'm thought just... he was one of Caliban's minions in the film. I didn't. I thought oh. he was like a guy working... At the time, I was confused. But I'm, I'm glad he got over a Sisters of Mercy thing and started, <laughs> you know, using his natural accent again. He kind of looks like um, it, it was a different colour palette, but a bit like Freeze. From Batman and Robin, yeah, yeah, I see <laughs> the that. whole sort of bald, no eyebrows look. Mm. <laughs> Having said that, I I think visually, I think Stephen Merchant is is a good choice here. Um, like picking a guy like him to be one of the last mutants, I I kind of like that you've got these these ones in hiding and that he is in full hiding. And I like, to, uh, but also he's like you know the one remaining guy who looks like a mutant because yeah. there isn't a, 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 outside of the kids that we meet he's he's the only one that actually looks like a mutant and that's always been part of that story as well about you know the mutants some of them are marked out and some of them aren't and how it can be you know we get that all, all of that with mystique yeah in, in i mean the trilogy um, uh in the in the comics caliban is a morlock and morlocks are mutants who can't pass as human and decide to live underground yeah Hmm. And like that's that's a kind of story that the movies haven't gone particularly near, aside from as you say with Mystique and like her her power is that she can blend in, so it's kind yeah. of neutered in that point as well. Yeah, um, but I did, so I while I kind of agree that I wasn't a huge, I wasn't totally sold on Stephen Merchant in those early scenes. I actually thought the way that they used the character, his confrontation with Rice, and then his sacrifice in the in the van. That all worked for me, and I think that they probably, in terms of the amount that they use the character and the function that they use the character for, I thought was was pretty effective. Can can we talk about Rice actually? Because there was a character I kind of felt like I was struggling to find the motivation for, because like they have that they have that scene where he makes a kind of offhand thing like oh you know you probably killed my father because he weighed a weapon x and he's like yeah i probably did <laughs> and there's some sort of rumblings about he wants to weaponize mutancy but it's kind of why like why is he 
so down on mutants. Yeah, I think I, it, you're right. This well, he's Richard E. Grant playing an evil British scientist, and yeah, I I think that is maybe enough. <laughs> uh, I I know what you mean the motivation's not there, and it almost even paying lip service to it kind of kind of like makes you realize how little motivation he's got or how little explanation there is for it. I think with a lot of things in this movie, I keep coming back to it's not about him. So it doesn't really matter. And Mm -hmm. that's, it's, I can imagine that would, that would bug you a hell of a lot. If you, if you are bothering about who those other people were, I don't care what Xander Rice's motivations are. (laughs) I don't care why, what the motivations are of the outside world that have, that have led them to the point where mutants are being pretty, all but extinct. I just, as long as the world feels believable to me that they've established, which it does, and as long as Xander Rice, as a villain, you know, makes sense for why there are people hunting down Laura and the other child mutants, and why Wolverine is protecting them, that's, it's it's all noise around the edge as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> and it's a completely valid criticism, but when I'm watching the movie, I don't care. And It's a fair it, trade-off. And it's, and it's Richard E. Grant, you know, doing Richard E. Grant. <laughs> it's a it's a fair trade off, and um, but then it is. I think it's also a very fair criticism because for a film that takes character so seriously and its protagonist and its a couple of its key supporting players so seriously, to just have stock dystopian private army kind of military industrial complex scientist guy as the villain is a bit of a of a, of a, of a crutch to lean on. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I, I wonder whether there's a, you know, in, in the various drafts of the screenplay or whatever, or just the sides of the screenplay in the margins, they just have a more fleshed out dystopian world because, you know, um, we, we, you know, as with Caliban, the way that he has a backstory, there's an end to, to an arc there that we don't see because he was a collaborator in, mm. you know, with, with Rice. They know who he is and we see the technology they're using on Pierce and the other special agents. That's a really cool scene where, they just dispense with some of those uh, heavy guys, and then you think, "Oh, that's them done with, right?" And then the next scene, you see them just regrowing their face <laughs> <laughs> and you know having new limbs put on. And, it's, and th- there's a lot of little details in the margins that I think are quite good. But then that because they're in the margins, it just shows up the villain like Doctor Rice as being quite flimsy, maybe. Mm. But then, as you say, if that's a trade-off, so that we have such a good kind of um, layered protagonist, then maybe that's fair. I mean, that's that's something that I think that, that there's a reason why um, Marvel's heroes, uh, their lead characters, have been so well defined because you can have all the criticisms of any of the Marvel films you want, but you kind of you kind of feel like you know Steve Rogers and you know Tony Stark and you even and you know Scott Lang by the end of those movies. Because there hasn't been the distraction of really investing in or creating or rounding out a villain because you've just been focused in on your lead characters the whole time. <laughs> we have we have sort of seen from the Batman franchise that if you try and define your villains too much, you tend to end up overlooking the hero. Yeah, and and I, w- I would say that the lack of the lack of I mean, because I liked Richard E. Grant in this. I liked Boyd Holbrook in this. Um I I think that 
the movie, while these are valid criticisms, while I was watching the movie, I wasn't going, I want to know more about why Boyd Holbrook is doing this. I, I just thought, no, it's his job. And I want to know more. <laughs> I want to know more about why Xander Rice is doing this because he's an evil yeah. scientist. Like I just, yeah, we- I, I just wrote it off. And and you're right. Afterwards, I can acknowledge that that's there, but I don't really care. Like I mm-hmm. and this is normally the kind of stuff that would niggle with me, but I just I don't really care. Which is where the character drama aspect butts up against what is perfectly fine in an action movie. You know, it, yeah, it, they're they're action movie baddies. Yeah. Really. Yeah, um, and 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 I could see it bothering me in other things, um, but yeah, I just I just kind of I just kind of wrote it off here. I didn't I didn't really mind, and because it yeah, it's just I think it's the sort of thing that prevents it from being a five star film. Yeah, like yeah. any film that you sort of dig in more and find flaws with, isn't a five star film. Mm. In my or, opinion. or the Oscar film that people are saying. Yeah, um, yeah, it, quite. it has a bit too much, I think, genre bullshit. Yeah, <laughs> like <laughs> and kind you, of. You the, use the term bullshit affectionately, of course. No, no, stuff that I that, that I do, uh, you know, it's perfectly fine in le- you know more silly or less serious versions of the, of these films, but in this mm-hmm. one, when it's really serious, but then they have vial of serum, <laughs> yeah, or whatever, <laughs> plot juice, um, plot juice, and um, Caliban having a power which is going to come into the second act as a as a plot mechanic. Um, yeah, that's the sort of stuff which is like go and watch Moonlight instead, and just you know, Moonlight doesn't rely on that stuff <laughs> yeah. to tell a really good story with characters that you can relate to, or even even you could so, say. I mean, how, any... how many claws does he have in Moonlight? Does he have four claws? Is that why it's better? Well, it is kind of like Days of Future Past with the timelines. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I mean, a lot of that is this movie. You can see it's almost like that. James Mangold and Hugh Jackman have sat down and gone, right, what elements do we need in our X-Men movie to tell the story we want to tell? And they've cherry-picked all the right ones, and it's convenient that they're all there, and ultimately they're ingredients, aren't they? They're not they're not things because because this is this is a story with a singular focus, I think, and all of that other stuff is in there because it's convenient to have it there. And it's and it, and it works ultimately it works you're right it's not an oscar movie but i i i put that on people you know people getting overexcited that that should yes, that's, like, i i don't just think keep we, it keep your trousers on we don't need to, <laughs> we don't need to compare this to moonlight we don't we can compare this to x men apocalypse or yeah. we can compare Batman it to Superman. John Wick or Midnight Special <laughs> or the films and Shane if you want to. Or Academy Award winner Suicide Squad. <laughs> exactly. Um and all, all of these things are just part of the film because they are they're all in service to Logan's story. And because this feels slightly etched off away from all the rest of the continuity, um I I just accepted that everything it it was fine by me. It was all fine by me. And there were parts that I didn't like. I didn't I thought like there there was there was a point where I was like, okay, I feel like I've seen Logan in, inflicted with enough wounds by this point. I feel like I've seen <laughs> enough claws go through people's heads at this point. Um I feel like I've seen enough scenes of the car going down the road like exterior shots of the car at this point um <laughs> I, I you know i feel like i feel like i've i've got all of that stuff um 
but what what att- what I was attached to the whole way was that you know that central character, and like I say, it was it's not even like a particular like a particularly deep character study because we know all this stuff about this character already. Yeah. It's just watching a character come to terms with his situation and finding one last thing in the world to uh, to to try and achieve, to try and root for, to connect with, and. Um, yeah, I think it ends. I think it ultimately ends up being a pretty moving little piece about this one guy, um, and you know, at establishing a kind of legacy for himself in in Laura, and kind of you know, this immortal character has has got that little piece of immortality, and that his his daughter clone is now out there, kind of fighting the same fight that he always has. Um, and I don't, I don't want to. It's yeah, it's it's satisfactory for me. I don't want it to be an Oscar yeah. movie. I don't want it to be anything more than that. I want it to be what it is, which is for me like a four star super superhero movie that um, yeah. that I think does exist in its own right. Like it doesn't. I I know that you got slightly bothered by that stuff, Mike, which I'm surprised by. I'm surprised that this I is surprised not James. Myself. I'm surprised after listening to this podcast here. for so long and uh, kind of think you know I was slightly laughing at you know James saying but Bruce Banner has to be with such a body and you know all that stuff it's like ah ha ha and then I realised oh no actually I do care about that stuff yeah. <laughs> and I'm surprised as anyone because I came into this podcast and like I, I I remember like watching episodes of TV show like I remember watching episodes of Red Dwarf and like twitching slightly if some like tight little bit of continuity didn't chime with something that I already thought I knew and I mm-hmm. didn't get into comic books in the first place like I read um, Reese having long conversations with Reese about like but if I want to read Wolverine I feel like I'd need to go back and read his first ever issue and then just follow him all the way through because I feel like I was joining a story halfway through um, and maybe comics has helped me lose that slightly that, that <laughs> need for continuity because you can't or that need for everything fitting together because it never does you know like it's it's in fact it's just nice to have this version of wolverine between all these different kind of films that has always felt like the same character no matter yeah. what what his surroundings and again that comes back to hugh jackman and how good he is um, yeah, and I think, you know, even all those niggles aside and all those sorts of slightly muted responses that I've, you know, listed all through this podcast, it's it's a unique film and it's a noteworthy film. And, you know, because it stands apart and is so, um, you know, you know, consummate in what it wants to do, it's going to be remembered and talked about for years. Also, it's completely unique in the sense that so many of these superhero movies have stars who are the engines behind the films and engines behind the franchises, but none of them have, um, you know, shaped a project and shaped a character like Hugh Jackman has in this film. Mm. You can't imagine, I mean, even, you know, Iron Man 3, um, you know, uh, Danny Jr. had the power to try and make that a bit different, but it was not as unique and as different as this. Mm. I mean, and and I think Hugh Jackman has had, to an extent, that that influence all the way through this Wolverine franchise. I think this is just the first time that they've got it right because he handpicked Gavin Hood for the first movie. That was his mm. choice, um, and I think I think like he he had him and Mangold worked together extensively, probably in much the same way that they did on this uh, with the Wolverine, and obviously at some time at some point in that movie got bogged down with other <coughs> silly stuff and. Ended up well. In in fairness, I 
think Mangold admitted recently that the studio pushed for a big CGI ending. Yeah, right. which I'm sure they did. But yeah, that's yeah. what's so satisfying about this is that you know that after th- after three goes, Hugh Jackman's finally shaped the project the way the way he wanted to. And also, speaking of CGI stuff, the, the credits were really short on this. <laughs> you're kind of used to sitting through 15 minutes of all of the various international CGI studios and VFX studios and editors and so on this one didn't have seemingly as extensive a VFX mm. haul as usual I would say the, the the physical effects the stuff that we see in terms of I I loved all that stuff early on with as you said Hugh Jackman failing to get his claws out fully uh, <laughs> like a, a a great little metaphor in the first scene and like seeing it, seeing him physically pull it out and seeing him like force the bullets out and stop it um and, and see like how you already see the scars on his body that's fine but the way that you see the the claws take a longer and more lasting effects on him. Um, the shot of the pus coming out of his yeah. out of his claw wound was extraordinary. And I thought the scene where we actually saw his mangled stomach in the doctor's surgery, um, yeah. I thought all of that was really, really effective because it wasn't even like quick glances at any of that stuff as well. The movie lingered on the wounds, and while I wasn't I wasn't completely endeared to all of the like I said the head popping action. Um, mm. because that's that's not really my bag. Um, I thought the the actual the makeup effects of the of of the the wounds and because I guess this is probably something that comes back to when Hugh Jackman says, you know, this is the real world. Um, you know, people die. It doesn't happen like it happens in the comics. It feels like there's a slight implication that some of the other stuff that you've seen is. Uh, like that this is this is a more grounded version and we see even x23 has little scab wounds almost on her hands where the yeah where the blades come out so it felt like the whole movie was trying to ground the violence and the effects of the violence in a in a more real world setting even or, or like or like a, or like a horror movie and one of the reviews said that it really digs into like the horror of a man with claws coming out of his fists, mm. um, both on you know the, the violence wrought against others, but also wrought on himself. And you can see how they really take that line from the first X Men to heart, where he says it hurts every time. Yeah, um, and <laughs> you know, uh, applying that to this sort of expressionistic movie in its in its physical, practical effects and gore, um, that really pays off. I know what you mean about it's very John Wicky when you made that connection it feels like it can't go five minutes in an action sequence without a somebody's head. head being in front of the camera and then a yeah. thing going through the head <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah i mean even the like even the shooting of um the the wolverine at the start at the end sorry yeah. the of the x24 wolverine that's <laughs> real that's real grisly um and that's that's the the only appropriate way to end this movie with a wolverine's head literally being exploded um, exactly. But actually, that- it, another thing that reminds me, um, back in that first scene, in terms of, like, this was what surprised me about how quickly they established uh, the consequences of the violence and um, and how vul- vulnerable, relatively, this version of Wolverine, of Logan, was, is in that first scene, when those kind of gangbangers have beat up... Um, have beat up Logan and they've got him on the floor and they put a gun to the back of his head... I was like, 
in that moment, I was like, oh, if they shoot him now, he's not going to live because they're going to shoot him in the back of the head. Or he's not like it felt it felt like there was for the first time in a Wolverine movie, real stakes. Like Mm. you remember back to X-Men Origins Wolverine and all of it just felt like it doesn't matter what situation you put this guy in. He's he's wolf like he's literally invincible. He's going to like it doesn't matter what you do to him. You can come up with any MacGuffin. I don't believe that he's vulnerable. <laughs> and then it within 2 minutes of this movie I'm going, "Oh shit, could Wolverine die here?" Obviously I know he's not yeah. going to, but it felt like he could. Um yeah. And that was impressive. To, that was really impressive to me. Um how how quickly it built this world and built this version of this character. Um and yet felt like a direct continuation of everything else that we'd seen of him. It's amazing to think that this is, you know, two films away from that final fight sequence in Origins Wolverine where they're, like, tearing down smokestacks and chopping limbs off and growing back and all that. um, They got it right. To to use that term that I said I didn't like. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like, I mean, I think we, we were we could dig around in this movie and find little niggles of stuff that we we didn't love or that didn't work you know on on kind of a small scale um but overall like the more the more we discuss this it just sounds like we all liked it you know like we all we all, we all had a really good time with this movie it it just depending on how much you want to think about various aspects afterwards um yeah yeah, it's the way that these sorts of movies attract such uh, expectations and fervour and in particular the occupational hazard of seeing it at those multimedia screenings, which is such a privilege, but then also such a pressure afterwards where people are rushing to tweet, rushing to have the first review up at the embargo, <laughs> and it's a pressure to be as extreme as possible. Um, and also, I'm... Mike, I do remember, like, after I've walked out of a number of press screenings with you and said to you, what do you think? And you're like... Let's talk about it tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I, I I don't like that huddle outside because from both angles, I I don't like liking a movie and then being there being one person in the huddle that doesn't like it to yeah. kind of cool your buzz. Um, but then also, I hate being the one person that dislikes something or or just doesn't like it to the same extent as everyone yeah. else, which is probably what this this movie is. But it is this. Well, we live in the sort of world where. You know, um, you know the, the the one negative view on Rotten Tomatoes can become a a figure yeah. of hate. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I would say though, I'm uh, I I think this is better than any of the superhero movies that were released last year. Personally, I... Ooh. what with with the five right Doctor Strange, Civil War, Batman vs Superman, Apocalypse, Deadpool, Deadpool Suicide, Suicide Squad, Squad. So six. Yeah, it, it comes in. It comes I, in above all of those for me. I think yeah. Deadpool's the only, Deadpool's the only one giving it a run for its money, and I think I still think Deadpool is a very good movie for a subset of people. I mean, like I, I don't love it, but I think the people it's made for do love it. Yeah, I mean, and I would say, like on a, on a personal level, like Doctor Strange is the movie that's more tailor made for me because it's within that Marvel mold. Um, but I think this is a movie that will stick with me more. Like I like a lot of stuff that Doctor Strange does and I like some of the <laughs> visuals, but I think this is the movie that I'll be thinking about a little bit more in a year's time than, than any of those. Yeah. If nothing else, like this is a movie I can imagine my parents watching and understanding, which isn't true of any of the others. <laughs> <laughs> like I think it, it's, 
it's a more broader it's a broad action movie as opposed to a genre superhero movie yeah, but it has a heft to it that makes it feel like an adult entertainment as opposed to kind yeah. of grown-up kids. Mm-hmm. Maybe well, it, I mean, I think that, it, it seems that way. It's it's rooted in the the emotion, the in the interior life of the central character, which I don't think you can say about an awful lot of superhero movies. Or like, or I think the crucial thing is as well, like an interior life that you believe. Like this. Mm. Uh, Hugh Jackman's Logan here doesn't feel like a comic book character that has these certain tropes that you need to take from the comic book page and realise on the big screen. This feels like a character who has lived a life that we've watched parts of and now feels like he has this distinct interior life that is Hugh Jackman's Wolverine. It's not Wolverine, it's not the comic book character, it's Hugh Jackman's Wolverine. And it's a character who we then spend emotionally investing two two and a half hours with, um, and I think that's what it is for me. Um, that's that's what I like about this, and this is that's that's why I think why I say I like this more than any of the films from last year is I could quite happily sit here with you guys for another hour or two and keep talking about this movie and dig into like I would like to dig into more of like what we think that. Uh, Richard E. Grant's character's motivations were. We've barely mentioned Donald Pierce, uh, Boyd Holbrook. I'd like to talk more mm. about him, but we've talked for so long about uh, the movie. I think on a, more on an overview than digging into any specifics. We haven't mentioned even the family that um, that huge that the Wolverine and Professor X and Laura yeah, go exactly. and stay with. Who like, I mean, man, when they die, that was the most upsetting moment of the film, I think. Yeah, exactly. It's probably it's the first X-Men film to have real humans, right? Yeah, like, oh, well, and, and talk about the the complexity of the moment where the dad of that family turns the gun and points it at Wolverine. My God, yeah, yeah. And you're going, yeah, I... I, I, you would. I, well, yeah, I'd he's just watched his family die because he took in this family for for to give them a warm bed and a meal. Mm. It's yeah, that so that's that's why I I think I'm so high on this movie and probably I've become more high on this movie during this conversation <laughs> than I was before we started because yeah. I've realized how much there is that I would want to that I want to talk about. Maybe we'll do a sequel. We'll come back to huh. this once we finally work our way through the entire X-Men franchise as we are doing <laughs> through Wolverine's timeline as well. This is the end point. We're gonna to have to work out what to do with future films once Wolverine isn't in them to be our to be our guide. <laughs> uh, but yeah, this is uh, this is maybe something that I would like to come back and revisit. I know Seb was desperate to talk about this, but couldn't see the movie in time. So maybe we'll maybe we'll even pick up and do a little bonus section with him at some point. <laughs> okay, so that was Logan. Um, hopefully, that will say all of our listeners who uh, were disappointed by how lukewarm we were on Lego Batman. Uh, because I think I think that was that was one where even even Mike, who was the the kind of the least positive on the movie, I think the majority of what you said about it was positive as well. So what a what a nice chat that was. Um, <laughs> but now we're going to move on and we're going to do our comic book recommendations section. And I believe James, you've got comics, and then Mike, you've got something a little bit different. Sure. Yeah, I'll give yeah. I'll give you a film recommendation. Should we do the we'll do, let's do the film recommendation first? So you've got a film you've got a film recommendation based on Logan. 
Yes, um, I think you might have seen this, uh, but with all of the discussion around westerns and Oscar movies and uh, kind of a similar palace and a similar landscape, I want to recommend Hell or High Water, um, oh, the David you know, McKenzie you know movie. I watched it two days ago. Oh my god! Okay, so I don't know how you want to process this. If you do want to talk about it on the um, on the minisode or not, but I'd just say that that is if we're talking about how uh, Logan maybe was a little bit superficial or short sighted in its use of Western tropes. I think Hell or High Water managed to manages to take a lot of that, put it in a modern day context, and keep it about sociology, about communities, about the West as it is today in um, sort of post-recession America. It's got a great cast of Chris Pine and Jeff Bridges and um, I've forgotten the lad's name. He played Angel, didn't he, in Last Stand? Ben Foster. Uh, ben Foster, yes. Um, incredible cast. And um, yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd really recommend that one. Yeah, I, I did really, really enjoy it. I enjoyed oh, I'm it. glad you did. I enjoyed it to the point that I was surprised that it had turned up in the Oscar list Um because it, it wasn't surprise. It doesn't feel like an Oscar-y movie, other than it's got Jeff Bridges in it. And I wonder, like, mm-hmm. if you if you had even with Chris Pine and Ben Foster, if you'd had someone different in that, it might not have shown up on the Oscar radar. But because it it's a it feels really low key, um, but tells a really clean story. Um, mm-hmm. And it, a thrilling it, one as well. It's a yeah. heist heist movie chase movie, but with a real political context around it. Yeah, and I can see, and I can see beyond the western as well some other parallels with Logan. Just in the maybe like Logan feels like an amalgam of some of the character, some of the characters in Hello High Water as well. Yeah, the Jeff Bridges character in particular, probably the the largest component there. Oh man, I, like I really like David McKenzie as a director. Um, some of the stuff he's done, I mean, Startup and um, Hallam Foe are two that mm-hmm. are two that jump out at me. I'd love to see that guy doing something with a with a big budget especially seeing what a handle he had on thrills and uh action in hello high water yeah he's been plugging away on the sort of uk circuit for some time yeah like startup was with um was with film four and then hello high yeah. water just went away and made that in the states and hopefully that's a stepping stone for bigger things because he has such a great he's a very flexible filmmaker he can move from genre to genre but uh, in terms of sort of masculinity and male characters within constraints and contexts, be that social or physical or like it's a prison movie or whatever. Mm. He's very good at that. Yeah. And I would also say he gets Chris Pine, who is, um, oh, you know, on some yeah. level an A-list movie star and pulls out the most interesting performance from Chris Pine that I've ever seen. Um, it's incredible. Which yeah. is something, again, that you would want in a director who uh, who is getting, you know, big superhero-y kind of movies. So... David McKenzie for um, Logan 2, X23, colon X23 and Friends, Take on the World. That's Can he do Gambit or Black Adam? Well, <laughs> that would rely on either of those films happening, which Seven James refused to acknowledge, so probably not. Uh, <laughs> James, what are your comic book recommendations? Um, okay, so the first one it, it, is old man probably... Logan. Yeah, you yeah. were expecting that. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so the only thing I'd say is be careful, make sure you get the Mark Miller, Steve McNiven version, because there have been some other comics using the same name. Yeah, Jeff Lemire's been doing one recently, hasn't he? Yeah, which uses a version of the Old Man Logan character, but this is the original Old Man Logan story set in a post-apocalyptic future, and it's a road movie about Wolverine at the end of his life. Um, Very different to the movie, I think you'll find a lot less connective tissue than you're expecting. 
Yeah, well, I know there's there's is Hawkeye part of it? I think, and there's yeah, yeah. I've I've heard bits and pieces, but I've refrained from reading it because I was expecting the recommendation to come right right there where it did, James. Yep. But your and second men- second recommendation. Now, part of me wants to recommend the original X twenty three stories, but I don't rate them that highly, as I've spoken about, and mm. I'm not a huge fan of the character generally. Like, I don't think there's any appearance where she's as good as she is in this movie. Yeah. So rather than that, I'd like to recommend just a one shot, which is also quite helpful because Wolverine Old Man Logan is quite long. Um, it's called Punisher The End. Hmm. And okay. what it is, is Marvel did a, a line of comics which were ostensibly the final stories of these various characters. I've read one of them because Charlie Cox recommended to me the Daredevil one, didn't he? Ah, that was the end of days, yeah, which yeah. was originally going to be Daredevil the end, but they they gave up on that brand before right, okay. it got published. But yeah, it's okay, same same wheelhouse. Punisher. Uh, the and end. so Pun- Punisher the end is about the Punisher at the end of his life and kind of speaks to the core of that character and what, you know, what is the final Punisher story essentially. Um right. and of all the the end stories they did, that's the best one. Uh, I think the Fantastic Four series was quite good and the Hulk one-shot was also quite good but the Punisher one is the only one that I think stands up. And it's kind of interesting in the context of these characters were created with a with a sort of core idea and then the business keeps them going forever. But, you know, what what is the end of the Punisher story? Yeah. Like, how, how does that happen? Uh, and that's my favourite one of the bunch. Fantastic. Okay. Well, um, I look forward to all of those. Um, yeah, uh, I was a fan of the the riff with Daredevil anyway. So uh, if if Punisher is the best one, I shall look forward to that one as well. Maybe we'll we've we've got to be close to having another Punisher film on the podcast soon, don't we, James? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can't wait. <laughs> Cannot wait. Because the last one was a whole heap of fun. Anyway, we'll move on now, though, to our final section, which is the pitch. And this week, um, this is pretty open-ended. You can you can read it however you want. Uh, but I would like to know, which other superhero would you like to see, given the, uh, in quotes, old man treatment? So, uh, like I said, interpret that any way you want, whether that just means old or whether that means a, a kind of an end to the story like Logan got here. But which other superhero would you like to see given the old man treatment? And Mike, I'll come to you first. Okay, so I was thinking about this. I was thinking about it quite straightforward as sort of characters we know and love, but then sort of, as with Logan, at the end of their lives, um, maybe with the weight of experience and their various adventures. and But then I, most of the protagonists and main characters, I think most of those stories have been done with Batman and Superman in the comics. So I, was, I, I dug a bit deeper into supporting the supporting cast and I thought that that one um, uh, character that could do with this we've mainly seen in the middle age in the films is Commissioner Gordon mm. um, and this uh, uh, I don't know if you're going to go two steps ahead of me with this but Gary, I, Gary Oldman <laughs> yeah so you can have Oldman Gordon as the poster and it would be Commissioner Gordon at the end of his long life because he's a character yeah. that shouldn't die young. He should he should live a long and fruitful existence. Looking mm. back, maybe having one last um, one last case in a sort of um, uh, Mr. Holmes style uh, in a McKellen film. I'm thinking you but, incorporate but, this into a Batman Beyond story. 
oh, you could do that. But basically, I was thinking about it, the poster. <laughs> 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 Old Man Gordon uh, uh, would be pretty perfect. Love it. Absolutely love it. James, can you do can you do any better than Old Man Gordon? Uh, probably not, because, I mean, realistically, the only superhero I think I'd want to see in this... Con- like, there have been a lot of sort of superheroes at the end of their life stories and i think if i wanted to see a movie what i'd like to see is a a superman movie about superman as an old man wondering about his legacy because i mean superman is the superhero archetype and so i think you could do a lot with him sort of reflecting on the effect he his existence had whether whether it was worthwhile you know what he inspired and what and you know there's a lot of commentary in there that you can dig into that I think is most appropriate for Superman than any other character. And like, obviously I'm a superhero fan. And so that's, if you're doing a story about an old superhero, I want it to be about being a superhero and Superman's the character you do that. Yeah. With. Uh, uh, in On the page, I have I feel like I've seen that a couple of times. Is it Secret Identity that ends with a section with an older Superman with his kids? Yeah. Yeah. And um, All Star Superman kind of ends All's, with yeah, that sort of tag, doesn't it? It's well, it's the kind of it's the kind of summation of that character's story. Yeah. <laughs> All Star Superman has a Jesus moment of he will return. It does, oh, right. but it, but it also does feel like you know looking back on a character's history, yeah, yeah. Ass- assessing all the elements and and putting a, an end on the story. Mm-hmm. Um, which is why, James, I, I want to read yours as a comic, but because, I mean, I always get the guess to win anyway, but Old Man Gordon, for the pun, for the pun, and for, I think I would like to, I think I would actually like to see that. Like, that's the version of Gotham that would have been more interesting. The version of Commissioner mm. Gordon after Batman has kind of gone and done all this stuff. What's what's Gordon dealing with in Gotham City at that point? I want a to lot see of this. paperwork. I want to see this as, as, a, as a Batman Beyond future movie in the not in the dcu well, it doesn't have to be connected <laughs> but i want to see it i like it gary oldman 2019 is old man gordon i love it so Great. mike gets the win this week and by extension seb because that's the way things work around here <laughs> um, <laughs> so another another tick on seb's side of the column um and i think even seb has stopped counting up the wins and losses at this point <laughs> maybe one of our listeners can go back and tabulate um but yeah, we're a, we're a fair few episodes in at this point. Um, but that is it for this week's podcast. Mike, thanks so much for uh, coming back and joining us for this lengthy discussion of Logan. Thanks for having me. It's been really fun to come back. Yeah. Is there anything you would like to plug before you uh, before you depart? Um, well, you can keep up with what I'm up to on Twitter. And I'm Michael J. Leader on there. Um, and in terms of other work, well, no, you can see it all there, basically. Do you want to plug your screening? Oh, right. Okay, yeah. so um, I, I co-run a programming collective called Misc Films, and we are screening a brilliant documentary called Homo Sapiens, which has nothing to do with comics, but um, uh, James likes it. Yes, it's very <laughs> it's a, good. It's a documentary which is sort of a travelogue of abandoned spaces and places around the world, um, and we have become the de facto UK distributor for it because we put on a screening last year at the Prince Charles Cinema in London, and now a bunch of other cinemas want to show it. So it's going to be in London from the 3rd of March <coughs> at the Pitch House Central, and then it's bouncing around from Nottingham uh, to uh, Bristol and elsewhere. 
um, from March and into April as well. So you can find information about that at miskfilms.tumblr.com. And we're also showing Medicine for Melancholy, which is uh, the debut film by Barry Jenkins, who directed Moonlight, which won the Best Picture Oscar over the weekend. Or uh, did it? His... Yes, it yeah, did. Or did it? <laughs> or, Definitely or, did. or was it Suicide Squad? <laughs> <laughs> um, and that's his first film that he made eight years ago on a shoestring budget. Um, and it's a really sweet sort of mumblecore, walkie-talkie film. Um, and it's unavailable in any format in the UK. So we've sort of dusted it off and found the rights and we're showing it at the, Prince, uh, the uh, Pitch House Central on um uh, in march so 14th of march that's coming up in a couple of weeks amazing well i'd certainly uh if i'm if you were in london yeah we should yeah we should do a lead screening of something hey nottingham nottingham's not too far if, if you're getting as close as nottingham I, I might even be able to travel down because that's a city that has some damn fine cinemas yeah. <laughs> yeah okay well um that is it for this week's podcast um if you're enjoying the show then please do subscribe on itunes stitcher player fm or your podcast app of choice and you can support us on patreon at patreon.com forward slash cinematic universe uh, you can find more episodes of the show at cinematicmultiverse.com. you can get in touch via facebook on twitter at cu underscore podcast or send us an email to cinematic pod at gmail.com Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Goodbye. Goodbye. Listen up, because I'm only telling you this once. I'm not Bedtime Story Lady, so pay attention. It's 2033, the world is screwed now. You see, a while ago, this humongous comet came crashing into the Earth. Bam. Total devastation. Cinematic Universe returns in two weeks' time with Tank Girl. Listen up, because I'm only telling you this once. I'm not Bedtime Story Lady, so pay attention. It's 2033, the world is screwed now. You see, a while ago, this humongous comet came crashing into the Earth. Bam. Total devastation. Cinematic Universe returns in two weeks' time with Tank Girl. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.